before we begin. Let's all take a moment to pay homage to the fully awakened one, our master, our guide, and our teacher, he who teaches us the path to free ourselves from all suffering, the path to ultimate bliss, the path from hopefully there is no return, the path to our salvation, our liberation and our freedom once and for all, reminding ourselves the ultimate sacrifice that he has made on our behalf, every single one of them along the way, selfless, limitless. Let us be grateful for that sacrifice. And as we bring our palms together in veneration, let us also remind ourselves that there is only one offering that he wanted from each and every one of us. That was not to pay respects to his name, but rather to be faithful and truthful to the path that he laid down for us. To walk that path and achieve the same results as he did. This is our goal. This is our vision. This is our ambition. That is what we are here for. So aware of what our purpose is, cognizant of that, let us begin today's proceedings by chanting the Namaskar. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa some things, when you start treating them, the symptoms seem to get worse before they get, they get any better. A bit like my my throat. So someone thought that I needed to treat it rather than continue like this. <clears throat> so I've started taking some something for it. And it seems to be getting worse. <laughs> but I'm assured that It'll get worse and then it'll get better. A bit sometimes like when you start treading on this noble path. Sometimes it seems that things are getting worse, things are getting harder, tougher. It may feel like that for a lot of you. Because what you enjoyed, <clears throat> what you took for granted, what you thought happiness was, you're now redefining that. It's like you had to rewrite the dictionary, but every word in it has a different meaning. Just imagine if you had to do that. So A means B now. And apple means orange. Now you'll take the same dictionary and the world doesn't make sense anymore. Bring me an apple. Someone's taken an orange to his mother. But I said, bring me an apple. It's a different world. So things are going to get a little bit worse, or it'll at least seem like it, 
it's not so really, it's not really. But it will seem like it's getting a little bit tougher for you, a little bit harder, before it gets smoother. You know, like the uphill battle, right? You know, if you're here, while you're here on flat ground, things are not hard at all because you're not going against your natural tendency, are you? You're not doing anything against what you're, what's normally supposed to happen to you. But as you start ascending the hill, every step you take is going to tire you. It's going to seem like that. And you're going to have to keep carrying on if you want to get to the summit. But as you keep moving up, it's going to feel exhausting. It's going to get difficult. And that's not because the mountain's steep. It's because you're not used to doing it. That is what you need to get into, a, into your mind. Anything is only difficult because you're not used to it. Because when you say that things are getting easier, what, that, what it means is you're picking up the habits that make it easier for you. We wake up at 4 o'clock in the morning. Now each and every one of you who do that can vouch for this, that when you had to first start doing it, it was tremendously difficult. But now it's second nature. You don't even have to think about it. Sometimes you wake up and then the alarm goes off. Habit. So as long as we are picking up the right habits along the way, there's nothing to worry about. One day you will get to the top, right? Just before the summit is going to be the hardest. But along the way, do remember, you're picking up the stamina. You're working your muscles. You're stretching them, right? And you're picking up the energy. Yes, of course, you're draining some energy along the way, but you're picking up the stamina. Your body is getting used to this. At the beginning, it's going to be tough. But just before you reach the summit, sometimes it can be quite tough. But for others, it can also be... This toughness gets going. When the, the going gets tough, the tough gets going. So once you're going to get to the summit, and then from there, it's just going to be flat ground again. And then once you're up there, you can see it all. Turn around and see how far you've come. That's why from time to time I remind you, just take a moment to think about how far you have come. Right? And that will be your inspiration to carry on. You need that. Preeti is, is an important aspect of your practice. Turn around and look at how far you have come. That's for everyone. You don't have to have become a monk or an anagarika for that. Each and every one will have a story. Wherever you started, wherever you are now, you'll have made some progress, a lot of progress. And you don't even have to have been here for this. Those online, they, they will also have made progress. If they hadn't made progress, how would we have this fine gentleman here today? They made progress. So it is possible to do this online. <laughs> this is proof of that, isn't it? But you make it possible for yourselves and you make it possible for others by bringing yourselves here. So then some things are going to get harder before they get easier. Just face the facts. And that's why you need a teacher. Oftentimes people get discouraged and they feel, no, I can't do it anymore. 
they stop and then turn round. Plenty of times that has happened in the sasana. You remember the story of Chula Pantaka, the brother of Mahapantaka. Right? He came into the sasana, he wanted to fulfill the path. And he was thinking to himself, how can I follow all these strict rules the Buddha has laid down? This is so tremendously difficult. I can't even lift a finger. Someone points out something wrong with it. So at one point he had become frustrated and he decided, that's it, you know what, I'm going home. I can't take this anymore. Goes and speaks to his brother and the brother says, well, if you can't, you can leave. But he, was, he had enough merits to come across the Buddha who said, no, you don't even worry so much about it. Just do as I say. Ragavine, deshavine, mohavine. Discipline yourself in Raga, Desha and Moha. Discipline yourself out of Raga, Desha and Moha. We'll talk about how you do that today. Because, you know, if the 227 rules of conduct seem too much for you, then you can achieve the same by doing Raga, Vine, Desha, Vine and Moha, Vine. Disciplining yourself out of Raga, Desha and Moha. We'll talk about how we can do that. So that wherever you are, even if you feel that this monastic livelihood is a step too far for you, if it seems difficult for you, right? Yes, you don't get the same level of noble companionship. I can't say that they are one and the same. Then you'd have to wonder why the Buddha created the Buddha Sasana and laid down or created the Sangha community. Yeah, you'd have to question the very need for that. But it's not one and the same. However, what you need to do is the same. Just put it that way. Whether you eat with your hands or you eat with your cutlery, your knife and your fork, eating is the same. One just means you don't have to get it all on your fingers. It's just easier. That's the difference. So as monks, it's easier because we have noble companionships. The fork and the knife, noble companions. Makes it easier. But if you don't have noble companionship, it's still the same thing you've got to do. You've got to eat. It's the same food. The food that nourishes me is the food that nourishes you. No difference there. So we talk about how we do Raghavini and Deshavini and Mohavini today. Hmm? That okay with you? Or shall we talk about the 227 rules of conduct? Shall we start with the four Paharajikas? What is the point? Because some people do spend a lot of their time actually going and reading the Vinaya books. Even lay people. I, I, I have to question what, <laughs> what for? Then there's a, a the the book of law the the law book in some other country like every country has its legislation like every country has its laws and rules and regulations if you're not going to go and live there why do you need to know it but if you are going there that's when you need to know it right 
But Raghavine Deshavine Mohavine is what we need to do if we are going to enter the paradise of Nibbana. Those are the rules and regulations there. So if you're going to go there, you need to study how to do that. Right. So without further ado then, let's get into that. The reason I love this sasana, this philosophy, this way of freeing oneself, is because once you understand this, it seems like there's hardly anything for you to do. Understanding is all you have to do. Which goes back to the point I keep making all the time, there is nothing to let go. Imagine someone clenching their fist like this. You want them to release this. You want them to release their their grasp. Okay? So you keep telling them, let go, let go, let go. They're like, no, 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 I can't because I have something precious, something valuable in here. But you keep trying to convince them. And then when they're not prepared to do it, if you still want them to let go, what you might do is actually try and do it forcefully. So you try, you try releasing their fingers like this, releasing their grasp, and you really do it forcefully. Now they're fighting against you, aren't they? So you, you, try, to, you try to extend this finger and they go, no, I'm not. Have you, have you ever had this experience trying to get something out of a child's hand? Hmm? Yes, you've got the experience. When they really want it, they're grasping onto it and you're trying to get it out of their hand. Especially if it's something sharp, you don't want to do that because you know it's going to hurt them. But they don't want to let go because they want it. So, the wise parents, what they normally do is they tell them that it's khaki. Hmm? They tell them why it's bad. They tell them what's, what's not good about it. They tell them why it's harmful to them. Why it's dangerous. Why it's not going to give, make them happy, but rather it's going to make them unhappy. Why someone's going to punish them if they hold it in their hand. And then hopefully, they'll let go. That is what you try and do. Now, instead of forcefully trying to release something that you're grasping onto, which applies for everything, ladies and gentlemen, including your sense of self. Because I know that you know, we're all starting to talk about this sense of self and you all, you're all trying to let go of it because you know that this is not good. You know this is not nice. You know this is, this is suffering. This is dukkha. Right? And you don't like it when you sense this sense of self. Agreed? That when you're looking at something and you know that seeing is happening but at the same time I feel that I am seeing, you don't, you don't want that I am seeing part to happen. You want it to stop. But it's not stopping. It just carries on. So, the deal is not to let go. The deal is to realize. It's always to realize. In the Buddha Sasana, there is no letting go to do at all. This is very important. Because otherwise, people fall out of favor of the Buddha Sasana. They think the Buddha Sasana is so hurtful. It's, you know, the moment, from the time I came into the Sasana, everyone's talking about I have, how I have to let go of this, this, that, and the other. The very things that make me happy, why do I have to let go of them? And if I do let go of them, then what's there left for me? What's going to make me happy anymore? So the deal is to understand this. That is, there is nothing in here. There is nothing you have clenched in your fist. There is nothing in there. Once you realize there is nothing in there, you don't need any convincing to let go. 
That's why we talk about Dukkha. Dukkha is the perception that there are single entities. The concept here is to try and understand that there is nothing that you are really holding on to. Once you understand that there is nothing you are holding on to, then you begin to realize that, well, what's the point of holding on if there is nothing to hold on to? That's the point. That is why when we talk about this, this sense of self, or we talk about Dukkha, the notion of Dukkha is that there's a perception in the mind that gives you the impression that there are things in the outside world. What things? Fixed things. They're not just manifestations, but rather they are fixed entities. So when there is a fixed entity, you have a tendency to grasp them. Now, think about this for a second. I'll give you an example. Right? You're standing by a stream. What does a stream have? Water. Flowing water. Now, if I asked you to put your hand into the water and grasp some water. Okay, it's a flowing stream of water. I ask you to put your hand in and grasp some water. How much sense does that make to you? If I asked you to, of course, you know, put your hands together like this and collect some water, that makes sense. Because you know that once you do that, you will have a quantity of water in your hands. But I'm asking you to grasp some water. You know that doing this, like grasping, clenching your fist in water is meaningless. Because nothing's going to be trapped inside. That's not how water works. So if I ask you to collect some water for me from the stream, you're not going to go and do this. Instead, you'll probably do this, or maybe get a flask or a pitcher or something and go and collect some water. Because you understand the nature of water. What we are trying to do here is to understand the nature of all things in this, in this cosmos. That is what Buddhist philosophy is. It, it teaches you the nature of nature. You could actually simply say it teaches you nature. This is natural studies. In fact, this is natural science. Understanding the nature of nature. If you want to think of nature as Rupa, Vedana, Sanya, Sankara and Vijnana, what we are trying to do is to understand their nature. So oftentimes I get this question. Even last night I got this. Like One of our young monks came up to me and said, Swami Nansa, I am reminded of things. I've, to, I've shared so similar stories with you in the past, but you know, they, they, this, is, this keeps coming up time and time again. Right? And I'm sure many of you will have this until you realize what the, what the point is. This, this will keep coming to you. So he comes to me and says, Swami Nansa, I am still reminded of the things that I used to do in my past. And when they come to me, I find it really difficult to contemplate on the Dhamma. I go into the Valley Malur, I try to reflect on what Guru Hamdru teaches us. I try to reflect on the teaching. I try to reflect on Anicca and Dukkha and Anatta. But my mind is flooded with all these thoughts of the past. The things I used to do, the things I used to eat, maybe what I saw, you know, what I had for lunch this afternoon. They just keep coming into my mind and what do I do? Here's what I said. I took off my glasses. And I said, I can't see what's at the back of the room. It's not very clear. It seems a bit hazy. It's not very clear anymore. 
So I asked him, what do you suggest I do? So I'm trying to explain to him in a way that he understands. If I can't see what's at the back of the room now, what do you suggest I do? He said, put on the glasses, Venerable Sir. He said, a question you don't even need to ask me. said, okay, so when I put on the glasses, why do you suggest I put on the glasses? Because once you put on the glasses, you can see. I asked him, what, the glasses? No, no, not the glasses. You see what's at the back, but with the aid of the glasses. Do you get the point there? So if you go into the valley malva, or if you're at home, doing whatever you're doing, and you're, tell, and you're telling yourself, I can't contemplate on anicca, dukkha, and anatta, because these thoughts keep coming to my, coming to my mind, right? you're trying to do the wrong thing. We don't put on the glasses to look at the glasses. We put on our glasses to see through the glasses, to see what we wanted to see. What I wanted to see was what was at the back of the room, not the glasses. But the glasses helped me see clearly. Without the glasses, I can't see it clearly. I just see some, some fuzzy image. So what's the point of the glasses? To keep studying it? To keep looking at the glasses? If I were to do that, I, I should just you know, blank myself completely, get myself into a dark room and just you know, look at the glasses, keep looking at the glasses. Yeah, that's what, I, that's what I should be doing if my purpose is to study the glasses. But that is not my purpose. My purpose of wearing these glasses is so that I can look at all these things. I can look at you lovely people. I can look at the sky and appreciate the sun, the moon, the stars. I can look at the ocean. I can look at the waves as they come and crash on the beach. I can look at young children playing and having fun. I can look at the flowers, Mother Nature, in all her glory. I can look at bird and beast and enjoy them for what they are. But without my glasses, all I can see is just a fuzzy haze. Not much at all. So I don't put on my glasses to look at the glasses, do I? But it seems like putting the glasses in front of my eyes, am I looking at the glasses? But it seems like that, does it not? See, what is Swami Nasi immediately looking at right now? Huh? The glasses. But... I don't even realize I'm looking at the glasses because it's completely off. You know, I don't contemplate on the glasses. I don't think, oh, glass, 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 glass. That's not what I'm thinking. I'm looking at you right now. I'm looking at this gentleman. I'm looking at that lady over there. So it's not constantly in my mind that I'm wearing glasses because if that were the case, then this would be an obstacle for me. I can't even contemplate or I can't, I can't think about anything. So I wear my glasses. Yes, but it's only an aid. It's my companion. To go where I want to go. But it, my companion is not who I want to be with. I want to go where I want to go, but I'll take my companion with me. Now, try to relate that to the Dhamma. You want to look at a site, a rupa. You want to listen to a sound, sabda. You want to listen, you want to li- taste something, right? rasa. You want to smell something, something nice. You want to feel something. You want to think about something. Sight, sound, smell, taste, touch. 
To understand them for what they really are, you need your glasses. But the purpose is not to understand the glasses. It's not to look at the glasses. You're not staring at your glasses, although it seems like you're staring at your glasses because that's what's immediately in front of your eyes. But that is not what you're looking at. You're looking at the background. You're looking at what's ahead of you. So if this is the Dhamma, then that is the Rupa. If this is the Dhamma, that is the Vedana. That is the Sanya. That is the Sankara. That is the Vinyana. Or in other words, that is the sight, the sound, the smell, the taste, the touch, and the Dhamma. Not that Dhamma. The thoughts that come into your mind. So then should you be worried or concerned that your mind just keeps drifting into your past and memories keep coming into your, flooding your mind from time to time? Should you be worried about that? Should you be concerned that you are reminded of what you had for lunch this morning when actually it's evening and you're trying to sit down for meditation and your mind just keeps drifting off? Vattaka, 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 whatever. If so, you're wearing the glasses for the wrong purpose. You know, it's like, it's like someone going to the optician because they are hard of seeing, right? And the optician prescribes glasses. They put on the glasses and now they say, I still can't see. You ask them why? Because there are some glasses in front of me. Just imagine if someone said that. What would you tell them? You tell them that you're crazy, man. Don't look at the glasses. That's not what you're supposed to look at. You're, you're supposed to look through them, but not look at them. So what is Anicca, Dukkha and Anatta for them? They are looking glasses. You look through them. You're not supposed to look at them. So Anicca, Anicca, Anicca is not your meditation. You look at Rupa. Rupam Bikkave Anicca. You look at Rupa. So what, you know, what form, say, size and shape does Rupa come in? It comes in numerous, various sizes, shapes and sizes and forms. So Rupas from the past, are they not good material for contemplation? Things you did yesterday, they come to you as memories. Are they not good matter for contemplation? Of course they are, provided you have your glasses on. What about Rupa from the future? Things you are planning on doing tomorrow, they come to your mind. So, you know, as a good Buddhist, let's say monk, as a good Buddhist monk, right? So as, when I'm talking about monk, then everyone else, you know, it's fair, fair game for everybody else, right? As a good Buddhist monk, am I not practicing the path by planning about what we're going to be doing tomorrow? That we are putting a plan together, a program together for our uh, devotees to come and, you know, do a meditation program, right? And we are spending a whole week planning that, organizing that, setting up the event. I, am, am I not contemplating? Am I not doing what I'm supposed to do as a good Buddhist if I'm planning that? What do you think? Is that the problem? Thinking about the future, thinking about the past, thinking about the present. Is that the problem? That's not the problem. The problem is if I take my glasses off and now look at things, I don't see them clearly then anymore. Now it's just a hazy, fuzzy image. You don't know where you're going. People bump into things because they can't see where they're going. It's not because of the things. It's because they can't see. Agreed? Someone who's hard of seeing, if they walked in here without a pair of glasses or their prescribed glasses, they'll probably start bumping into things. So what should we do? Take all those things out? Move them out of the way? Imagine they're coming here for the sermon. 
Okay, this good sir. He's coming for the sermon. He's left his glasses at home. Now he's he's, he's deaf as a log. You, you, you can't, oh, sorry, not deaf, but rather blind. Huh? Blind as a log. You can't see anything. Or blind as a bat. Huh? You can't see where you're going. Right? And now, to help him come into the room, we remove everything in this room, including the Swami Nansi. Because otherwise he comes and bumps into the Swami Nansi. After we removed everything in the room, what, has, what is he here for? Is that the point? Is that what we're supposed to do? Of course not. So what do we do? Rather than ridding the room or clearing the room or waking, making the room vacant of all things here, what we do is we just give him a pair of glasses. So you forgot your glasses. Put them on. Ah, excellent. Now where's the Swami Nasi? Not that way, this way. So he turns around, sits down and starts listening to the talk. See, that's the point of Buddhism. That's why Buddhism is, you know, we have nothing against the things in this world. That's why I say it's not about letting go. It's about realizing. Realizing things for what they truly are. I always tell this to people because if, if you get Buddhism the wrong way, right? if it rubs you up the wrong way, you're going to think that Buddhism is here to completely ruin your happiness. That's why people think that Buddhism is such a pessimistic, such a, such a negative religion. Some people are so worried and they, they fear Buddhism. They don't even come to the sermons. They don't want to listen to a monk because they look at a monk and see, you know, he's, uh, he was okay before, but now he doesn't even have hair on his head. See, he's lost it all. He's giving up everything. If I keep listening to these sermons, I'm also going to lose my hair. This lovely hair I have on my head, why do I want to give it up? This is what happened to him when he started listening to the sermons. He was fine. He played cricket with us when he was younger. But look at him now. I mean, that's the problem. Like, because you see the end product. Right? And you think you have to do it immediately. Right? So, of course, it's going to be daunting. That's what happens to people. They look at Arahat and Nuhansi, right, with no attachments, no bonds to this world, right? taking a meal purely for his sustenance, Right, no relationships, no home to live in, right? Very free, free life. You know, maybe you're, you're traveling from place to place, and then someone who has listened to the Dhamma the first time looks at an Arahatan Mahansi and thinks, "Gosh, when am I ever going to be able to do that? If that is what I need to be like, no, I don't want this." You look at the end product and you think you have to change by tomorrow. Not so. So don't look at people who have given up and think that the purpose of Buddhism is to give up. It's not. It's not to let go. It's just to realize. Once people realize, they don't cling on to anything because they realize, what do they realize actually? That nothing is inherently of any value. Nothing is inherently, nothing inherently has, any, any, has any joy or pleasure to offer you. Once you learn that, once you realize that, then you just let go naturally. Actually, you don't let go. You just understand that there is nothing to hold on to. Like I said, if you, if you didn't have anything in your fist, but you kept your fingers clenched, right, the point is to, to, let you, to, to get you to release your fingers. Because, you know, for as long as you keep clenching your fingers like this, it hurts, does it not? Imagine if I asked you to keep holding like this for the next hour. By the end of that, your fingers are going to go sore, right? They're going to, they're going to feel very, very painful, right? You're going to feel a lot of pain. But 
You're the one who has to endure this, and it's pointless, it's in vain, if particularly you have nothing in here. If you had, then so be it. At least there's something to gain out of it. But imagine you had nothing in your fist, but you still kept your fingers clenched. What a bad deal that is. This is what people do. When people don't realize the Dhamma, they just keep on holding. So now you have to protect. If you think you've got something in here, you have to protect it. There's nothing in here, but you think there is something in here. Now you have to protect it. You have to guard it. You have to nourish it. All these things you have to do. So what does realization do? Your realization is your understanding that actually there is nothing in here. Once you know that, you no longer have to be like this. You just let go. So your first glimpse into Dhamma, the moment you enter the stream, so to speak, is when you realize for the first time, you get a glimpse. Oh, actually, there's nothing in here. But now you're so used to clenching your fist like this. It's what you've been doing all your life, all sansara. It takes a while for you to release. And that release you constantly keep doing, continuously, repetitively, contemplating on the fact that there is nothing in here to grasp. Nothing in here. And every time you think about that is a moment, is an instance where this hold is released. One bit at a time. Eventually, you let go. Now that is the point of Buddhism. I say this because it's important that you all understand what Buddhism is. Whether you're a monk or an anagarika or an anagarika, right? The point of Buddhism is not to let go, it's to realize. This cannot hurt. The practice of Nibbana cannot hurt. You know, I drew the, drew the picture up here and I said, you know, at the beginning it can be a little bit difficult. It's not really difficult. It's difficult because you haven't understood yet what the point of Buddhism is. Otherwise, what you realize is actually it's something like this. You're starting here and going this way. It's not difficult. It gets easier. But the problem is, that's not generally how it starts off. You feel like you start off here. Because, you know, at this point in the sasana, where you're only just starting to make, a, make an entry, your understanding of the Dhamma is how much? None at all. Right? So you feel, I have to let go of everything. But the truth is, there is nothing to let go. You just need to realize. So imagine if right at the beginning, your realization was at its peak. Then, what you would realize, what you would feel is, what you would sense is, your path is, is something like this. Every step you take, it only gets easier. Now, out of experience, you can all agree with me that this is not usually how it is. It feels like it's this way, but the truth is, there is nothing you're holding on to. You're holding on to nothing, but you think you're holding on to something. That's it. But so, if your realization was at its peak, you know, it's like, in reality, it's like this. But you feel it's like this. Why do I say this? Because in reality, there's nothing to let go of. 
There's no letting go of your lay life. There's no letting go of the sights you like to see, the sounds you like to listen to, right? The, the things you like to eat. None of, you don't really need to do any of that. So in reality, this is the progress that you actually make. It's, it's, it's a flat ground. But it seems like this is what you have to do. This way. It seems like that is what you have to do. If your realization was at its peak at the beginning, you'd feel like this is what you have to do. In reality, this is what you have to do. So why, do, why are people scared? Why are people worried? Because they sense this reason. Well, at the beginning, your understanding is nil. That's why. But that's okay. You know, that's, if that is the way it's going to be for everyone, then that's going, the way it's going to be. And we all have to start somewhere. And we make progress. So, Rupam Anicca. I'm going to try and explain to you today how you can do this Ragavine, Deshavine, Mohavine. So, you don't need to worry about the 227 codes of rules of conduct. So, today, this is going to be a little bit like a meditation session. Okay, I'm going to give you a few examples and you need to contemplate. You need to think about how this works. Because what I need you to be able to do is to do it when you're not here. When you're here, all you have to do is listen to the sermon. But when you're not here, you need yourself to be the noble companion. You don't have someone to guide you. So, your true success and achievement should be, are you able to do what you can do here when you're not here? Right? That is the true measure of success. Let's take a simple example. <clears throat> now, I want you all to actively engage with this. So, I want you all to think of examples that relate to you, that make sense to you. Okay? Think about something. Now, this is a safe environment, so it's fine. Think about something that ignites in you the emotion of desire. Think about something that ignites in you the emotion of desire. It can be a sight, can be a sound, can be smell, taste or touch. Whatever it is. You know, it could be something you like to eat for someone. It could be someone you really like for someone else. It could be something you have seen that, you know, that, that you know, you know, these sights ignite the fire of desire within me. You know this. Maybe it's something you listen to. You listen to it every day. Right? Because you really like it. Maybe it's, it's a song you like. You know, maybe it's the radio. You listen to it on the way to work. Something that you really enjoy. Something that is a source of pleasure for you. At least you feel it's a source of pleasure for you. Think of that one object for a second. This is a safe environment, so it's okay. I'm, asking, I'm going to ask you to do something now. Have you all got something in mind? Right, so I apologize in advance for the arahants in the room. It's going to be very difficult for you, this part. But for the non-Narahans, I think this is fair game for all of you. So do you all have something in mind? It could be a partner. It could be sports, if you like that. It could be food, if you like that. Hmm? Whatever. Movie that you like to see. Something that ignites the fire of desire. So I'm doing this here so that you know what to do when you're not here. 
because you know fire of desire doesn't just ignite on Saturday morning, does it? Then we should all just stop coming here. <laughs> right. So now let's take a moment to think about how do we do Yonisa Manasikara with this object? What is this meditation that we have to do? What is what do we mean by this contemplation? What do we mean by this Yonisa Manasikara? These are all fancy words, but what does it actually mean? Right, let's take this object. This is the object. And it's on fire. Fire of desire. Okay, do you all have that object in mind? This is an object that bothers you all the time. Doesn't it? When it comes to mind, you lose your peace. When it comes to mind, you feel like you have been You have been dealt a bad card. It feels like you know you're never going to be able to detect any burn. That's the object I'm talking about. It's 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 the object that makes you feel like you know, Nibbana is a million miles away for you. I want to help you understand that it is not the object that brings you the problem. For that realization, you just need to understand how to apply the Dhamma. Okay? So now we have this object in mind. Let's take a moment about to understand how you perceive this object initially. Because before your mind ignites with the fire of desire, Buddha, do you both have an object as well? Something you like? Yes? Good. So this object, to ignite the fire of desire within you, first you need to recognize this object. So initially you have to perceive this object. Yeah? Right, let's see how that happens first. Now you know the process. I'll take a visual object, but it can be a different one for, for, for you. <clears throat> so if it's one that comes through a different sense organ, you can apply it accordingly. But I'm going to take a visual object. Okay, so this is the visual object. We have the eye, and we have the object. So this is the object. It has now come into contact with the eye. Here I mean the physical eye. So we haven't perceived it yet. So the perception process has to has to begin now because it has been stimulated. Okay? So now we have receiving. So we receive this object. You recognize the object. You sorry, register the object, you recognize the object, you respond to the object, and you perceive the object. By the point it comes here, so this is a mental process, this one image, whatever that object is, has now been perceived. Do understand for a moment, now this might be challenging initially to think that the object does not bring you this fire of desire, but it doesn't, because that is why it's not the same for all of you. Okay? Now you, you know that, of course, the object does not have inherently any pleasure, or desire, right? It's 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 a it's a it's a reaction that you have in your own mind. So now that it's come to the perception stage, 
you have understood what this object is as an arahant does. That is what has just happened. You understand this object as an arahant does. So you will understand some characteristics about it. You will understand that it has a size. It takes up space. You will understand that it has a color. You will understand that it has length, width, breadth, so therefore size. You will understand that it has a mass. You will understand some physical characteristics about this object. Right? So for, for, this, for, the, for the point of this argument, uh, I'm ignoring the fact that color is a perception in the mind. And it's not in the object. Right? Let's just assume that you've taken it all as something that's coming from the object. So now you perceive the object. But desire hasn't arisen in your mind. So I'm talking about this, this sense of not, not just basic desire. I'm talking about desire that burns you. So, you know, lust, if you like. The desire that burns you from inside. The desire that makes you feel that you're, you're filthy. The desire that makes you feel like you're dirty. I, I don't like this. I really don't like this. I, 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 how can I ever share this with someone? I, 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 you know, these are the things that I wish to get out of my mind. It makes me feel unholy. Right? I'm, I'm talking about such objects. So this has now happened. So at this point, you don't feel this desire. You have just perceived this object like an arahantas. But something happens after this. Hold on. Along with this, yes. Something happens along with this. In your mind, you have an understanding of this object which is not true. Because we can understand things either correctly or wrongly. Right? Things can remember the, the color experiment we did the other day? Right? You saw a white and a grey and you held your finger in front of you and you realized that they were both the same color after all. So the mind can perceive all sorts, right? It's not always what is out there that the mind perceives. So now the mind is perceiving the object, but the mind wishes to experience pleasure because the mind believes that pleasure is there in the outside world. So it wishes to experience that. Now for there to be pleasure, you can't get pleasure for something that is not a single unit. Because if I ask you folks, you know, what brings you happiness? If I ask you what brings you pleasure, you will always have to give me an answer that then this one, whatever word you come up with, if, this, if it is this object, then you're talking about a specific object. You're talking about a single unit. You're talking about an entity. So you can't talk about happiness. I don't mean unconditional happiness. You can't talk about conditional happiness without talking about entities. So now you're saying, this, this entity brings me happiness, this entity ignites the fire of desire within me, so clearly this entity has within itself, inherently, the ability to give me pleasure. This is the ignorance that you're in. This is the ignorance that you're in. But the, the reason ignorance is called ignorance is, because when, it, when it's there, you don't know it's ignorance. It's like darkness. When you're in the dark, and if this is the first time you've seen darkness, or you, you've always only known darkness, you've never seen the light, right? When you can't ask someone what is darkness, because that is what you're in. So when you're in the dark, you don't know that it is darkness. I'm talking about someone who's never seen the light before. Like a fish in the water, 
like fish in water, you, 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 the fish doesn't know what land is. Yeah, so no point talking to the fish about land. So thinking that, with this misconception, misinterpretation that there is happiness to be had in this object, now what happens is, based in ignorance, there is the expectation that this object will give me happiness. It will give me joy, give me pleasure. So this is the expectation of happiness. Happiness or joy or pleasure. The expectation of pleasure. What is the expectation again? That this object will bring me pleasure. So that that pleasure is inherent in that object. Now, let's go back to the example. I asked you all to think of an object in mind. So here's the practical part. Think of that object for a second and ask yourself, don't you think that pleasure is in that object? Isn't that the, 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 the perception that you have about this object? Yes, of course. Now you have understood the Dhamma and you know that it's not in there. But in, in, you know, in your subconscious mind, don't you still feel that it's there? You can't deny this. You still feel that pleasure is in the object. That's why you, you seek its, its association. So this is true then, isn't it? Even if you didn't think that that was ignorance, right? even if I just were to cover that up. Because when you're ignorant, you don't know it's, it's ignorance. You wouldn't be in ignorance if you knew it was ignorance, would you? Do you know a lie is a lie when you are lied to? If, it's, uh, if you knew that it was a lie, then you don't hold it as true. Right? So, right now, your expectation is that the object can bring you pleasure. So, in each of your examples, for every one of you, you have one example, whatever is the object that I, we just talked about at the beginning, right? you all have an understanding that it's going to bring you pleasure. Yes or no? If, you ask, if I ask you right now, you'll all, you'll all be able to answer yes. So, I'm going to answer, I feel that this object brings me pleasure. So when you have this feeling that this object brings you pleasure, the mind attaches to it. Why does the mind attach to it? Exactly. Because the mind is always seeking pleasure, always seeking happiness. The mind wishes to be happy. Actually, to be, to be more precise, you could say the mind wishes to be without suffering. So rather than saying the mind wishes to be happy, the mind wishes to be without suffering. But the mind is constantly suffering. Yeah. Because the mind is constantly suffering, it's looking for a moment of relief. It's looking for a, moment, for, for a moment's rest, or a moment's respite. It's looking for that. Because it's always suffering. So actually, what, if you ask the mind, you know, you do an interview, do you want happiness? The mind will say, no, I don't want happiness. I just want to be without suffering. It's like if you were carrying a heavy rock over your head. Right? What are you looking for? To put it down. Putting it down is all you're looking for. You don't want to carry something else. You don't need something lighter. You just want to put it down. In the same way, the mind is looking for a moment's respite, a moment's rest. 
And that rest it knows can be, it, what it doesn't know is that rest can be achieved if only it let go. That the mind doesn't know. The mind simply thinks that this rest will come to me if I can experience this object which I believe has happiness. See, this is the reason it's very difficult to help people who think that they are happy. It's very difficult to teach them how to be happy. Because when someone believes that happiness is to be gained from the outside world, from associating with something, to teach them that no, it's, it's an understanding that those objects don't bring you happiness, is the way to happiness, they just don't get the point. Because we are talking about two very different things. Pleasure is one, happiness is another. They're not one and the same. Pleasure is where you're looking for a lighter load. You, you, you think happiness comes from something else and, and you keep on looking for it. Happiness is where you realize there is nothing in this world that brings you that and therefore you just put it down. So this is a state of freedom from suffering. This is a state of a temporary relief from vexation. They are not one and the same. So, you know, Nibbana is not just more of the happiness that you normally have in your worldly existence. It's not just more of it. Does that make sense to all of you? If someone asks, what is Nibbana? Don't give the answer. In worldly life, we just get temporary moments of pleasure. In Nibbana, we get it all the time. Would that be the right answer? Sometimes, you know, when we have discussions with people, I, you know, I say, so why, what is the problem with this worldly happiness? And they give the answer, it's temporary. How wrong that is. You ask someone, what is wrong with worldly happiness? And if the answer they come back with is, it is temporary, do you understand that it is flawed? This is not the right answer. Yeah. To say that it's temporary implies then that Nibbana, the same pleasure you get all the time. So it's permanent. That's not the difference. This is one, this is something else. It's like comparing apples and oranges. They're very different things. So, at this point, your belief, your mind thinks that this, it has no understanding of this. But what it wants is to be free from suffering. It actually, the mind doesn't want happiness, ladies and gentlemen. Oftentimes I ask, you know, at the beginning of a sermon, what are we all here for? And you say the answer is happiness. Right? That's where we all started this journey. We're all here for happiness. The truth is actually, you're not here for happiness. You're here to be free of suffering. It's not the same thing. Because remember, you're asking this question from someone who doesn't understand Nibbana. So they know only one kind of happiness. Yeah, when the Buddha first preached the Dhamma, the, the uh, Dhamma Chakapautana Sutta, right, how many Buddhists were there in the audience? None. Hmm? At the end of that sermon, how many Buddhists were there? Say one. Okay, only one Buddhist. So the Buddha doesn't preach to Buddhists. Actually, Buddhism is not for Buddhists. Then. Because if you are a Buddhist, you don't need Buddhism. So the Buddha doesn't preach to Buddhists. Yes, he does. I mean, he speaks to Arahants even, right? But it's not intended for Buddhists. The Buddha speaks to non-Buddhists. So a non-Buddhist, if you ask them, what is the difference between pleasure and happiness? Do you think they'll understand the difference? 
Do you think they can tell the difference? No, they can't tell the difference because they don't know what this is all about. All they know is this. They only know pleasure. And how does pleasure work? Pleasure works by thinking and believing that happiness come from the, comes from outside world objects and their association then becomes your longing. It becomes your, your, your desired object. And then you wait for it. You long it. You do abhisankar. You, you go on striving for it. And then finally you acquire it. In that moment you are relieved from vexation. How very different it is from happiness. You can't have pleasure if there were no material objects in this world. You, it's absolutely dependent on them. But with happiness, you don't need any material objects in this world. So you see, they are worlds apart. They are not compatible at all. Does that make sense to everybody? These two things are not compatible. They are completely worlds apart. This is completely alien to this. Completely dissimilar. Have nothing in common. In fact, the feeling of it is not the same either. So, happiness doesn't feel a little bit more like pleasure. It doesn't. It's a very different feeling. So, in your quest for Nibbana, your task, your objective should not be to have more of these and have them try and make them permanent. Although some people think that that is what Nibbana is. More of this, because this is temporary. Anitya. This is temporary. This is very temporary, so it arises and passes away. What if we can have something that lasts forever? And they believe that more of this is this. It's not so. It's not like one and one make two. That's not how it works. This is one, this is completely another. So let's go back here. The experience, not the experience, the expectation of pleasure from this desirable object sends your mind into attachment mode and into vexation. This leads to vexation. So when you think about this object of your desire, whatever object that you have in your mind right now, the reason you vex is because you believe that it inherently has pleasure to give you, to afford you. Is that not so? Don't you, don't you feel that way? Don't you feel that it can give you pleasure? You do, even if you know it, you know, out of knowledge you know now because you've been listening to the Dhamma, you've been listening to the sermons, right? But you still can't convince yourself enough that it is not an object of pleasure. You still feel that it is, although your knowledge tells you one, your heart tells you another. So there's this mismatch now. Your brain tells you one thing, your heart tells you another thing. That's the problem you have right now. And, and, and you, you know, you, there is only one way to overcome this. Keep telling your heart what your brain knows. I use this hard brain metaphor here, but you know that's not really how it works. It's all in the mind. Okay? But keep telling your mind what your mind already knows. That's why we have this, this, this cleansing process. Initially happens with the drushti, then it goes to the sanya, and finally it goes to the chitta. So your drushti or your view should be corrected initially, which is what we are doing here. Once that drishti is corrected, then you know, although I feel like this, I know it's different. That is the point where it's going to your sanya. Okay, so these are the three stages. First of all, the drishti is where you don't even know that you, know, you think that pleasure is the same as happiness. 
More pleasure means more happiness is what, you, is what you initially think. But once you are dispelled of the drushti, now you understand, no, I experience pleasure, but this pleasure does not come from the object, but I still feel it, I still perceive it, and there's a problem with that. At this point, you have gone into the level of sanya, but you still feel it. So with this sanya, you constantly you, and continuously, you try to cleanse the mind. And at one point, the, the, the mind itself, the mind base itself is cleaned. But it is with the sanya that you can clean the mind, not with the drushti. The drushti only gives you the right kind of cloth. You learn that you have to clean this, you have to wipe this out. You know, the dust has to be cleaned, the rust has to be scraped, scraped off. This is the drushti. Samma drushti. But then starting to, you know, with a wire brush, you start brushing, you start scraping the rust off the iron. To use that metaphor, or that simile. You start brush, rubbing the, the scraping the, the rust off the iron, but you need the, the 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 wire brush to do this. That is the sanya, and then you continuously continuously keep doing it until one point comes where the iron is completely free of rust. So the so, you know the the association is here with sanya and the and the chitta. The sanya is what cleans the chitta because the drushti has now been purified. So with your vexation, now, of course, the mind cannot bear this vexation because it, 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 it's painful. That is why it's called vexation. So the mind now seeks to relieve itself from vexation. <laughs> when the mind was, wishes to relieve itself from vexation, the mind now seeks the association of this object, thinking that this object, because it, remember, the mind believes that this object is a unit. It's an entity. Without an, you know, I'm, I'm trying to convince you of this point, ladies and gentlemen, because if you can understand that desire and aversion cannot work where the sense of an entity doesn't exist, then you realize the connection between what we're talking about here and Ragakke, Deshakke, Mohakke. Others, you'll, you might wonder if the Buddha's preaching is to, to achieve Ragakke, Deshakke, Mohakke, and that is Nibbana, why are we talking about entities? What's the point? What's, you know, why are we not just talking about Raga, Desha, and Moha? The reason for this is, you can't have desirous thoughts if you don't believe in entities. It is fundamentally based in your belief of entities. Fixed things. Because you can only like fixed things. You can only dislike fixed things. They have to be entities before you deal with them. If it's not an entity, you can't hold it. You can't grasp it. So you need this false belief, which is what you have at the moment, this false belief that there are entities in this world so that you can then deal with them. Otherwise, there's nothing to hold on to. It's like a ghost. Right? First, it needs to solidify. That's when you can hold it. So it's all based in drushti, sir. You know, ignorance is the drushti, right? And out of ignorance, because if you think of ignorance as being your um, your delusion, you can think of moha as your illusion. So if you're deluded about something, meaning you don't know the truth about something, now you have this illusion of something. That's illusion being your your sense of self or your sense of separation. It, it's it's this you know, it's this projection that the mind has. It's, it's very difficult to put a, put, a, put a picture about this because 
this is this is an abstract thing, right? So I'm trying to explain to you something that is abstract by using words and 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 forms, but this none of this is form based. This is all formless. I'm talking about it's like the sense of love. How do you how do you give love an image? How do you give kindness an image? These are all emotions. In the same way, you, you, separation is is a sentiment that that the mind has. It's it, you can't give it a form or a shape. But this this sentiment, this projection, is the illusion that you project because of delusion. So delusion is a state of mind. Delusion is you say you are deluded, meaning you don't know you, you know right from wrong. If you don't know right from wrong, now you create this imaginary thing and then you project it onto the outside world. And then you think those things that you project out there exist. That is your illusion. Like, you know, when we perform magic tricks, well, you, you don't call them delusions, right? You call them illusions. But why is it magic to the observer? Because they're deluded. So, because based in delusion, you see illusions. So in, in that manner, if ignorance is delusion, then moha is your illusion. And what happens when you have moha, this illusionary image of fixed entities is projected to all things in this world. And all things in, in this world can be categorized into the five. Rupa, Vedana, Sanya, Sankara and Vinyan. Because that is all the mind receives. The mind doesn't know anything else. Of course the mind doesn't know this object. But what the mind knows is the perception of this object. You see, without this, would this exist then? Remember the other day you were talking about a boot and you have a stone stuck in it? Right? Or if you have a, if there's a stone stuck in your boot and as you're wearing it, it's, it's cutting into it or bruising your, your foot, what should you do? Take off the boot, right, turn it upside down and get the, get the rock or the, the, the stone out and then put the boot back on. So the boot in that, in that metaphor is this. The rock is this. You can't have the rock without the boot. That doesn't make sense, right? The rock is cutting against my foot, but I don't have a boot. It doesn't make sense. Because the, the rock has to get stuck between your foot and the boot. So no boot, no rock. So, so if, you, if, if the rock keeps on cutting you, is the answer to take off the boot and throw it away? No, because the boot is there to help you walk. You need the boot, you just don't, don't need the rock. So in the same manner, what should we do here is, this is the boot, but without the boot there is no rock. So you take the boot off, turn it upside down, remove the, the, the rock and put the boot back on. And then you get another hunt. So, your object of desire, you are in this mode now, that this has already happened to you. You understand this object as it is, but you, without this, you don't see this as an entity. You need this process to see this as an entity. And here's what I'm, where I'm going to show you this now. The mind expects pleasure, but the mind cannot have pleasure unless it comes from an entity. Right? How do we know this? Because every time I ask you, what is it that is your source of desire? You name an object, don't you? Don't you? you always have an answer. To, uh, an answer is an object. So an object is a what? A fixed thing. You, can't, you, can, you can never say the desire, you know, the object. Sorry. My source of desire is a manifestation. <laughs> that, that, no, it doesn't work like that. You can't have a manifestation and a desire at the same time. 
You can't have manifestations and aversions at the same time. You can't have manifestations and, and, and uh, what you call a delusion at the same time. Because delusion is your thinking that there are no manifestations, but rather there are entities, fixed things. That is what delusion is. So they are ex- mutually exclusive. That's why this is all called Moha Raga, Moha Desha and Moha Moha. That is the full name. So it's double-barreled. It's not just Raga, Desha, Moha. It's Moha, Raga, Moha, Desha, Moha, Moha. And what is that Moha? This Moha is this delusion. The delusion that what exists out there are fixed entities. So without fixed entities, you cannot talk about desire, aversion, or delusion. So in this, the, the third delusion I'm talking about, it's talking about the measuring. Right? It's like com- comparing. Right? Bigger than, better than, lesser than. You see, that comes after your, your, your perception that there are entities, right? Does that make sense? Not really, no. <laughs> we talk about, say, Seiyamana, Sadhisamana, Hinamana. Okay? For there to be this kind of mana, or this kind of, this, this comparison, they have, there has to be objects. There has to be, so there, there has to be you and I before we can compare, right? If I feel that I'm, I'm lesser than you, for instance, and you feel you're better than me. Before we can come to that determination, or before we can come to that judgment, rather, both you and I have to feel, have to sense that you and I exist. That is the basic moha. That is the most basic moha. You and I exist. If you and I exist, now one of us has to be better. Or we have to be equal. Either way, we are comparing. Either less than, greater than, or equal to. These are the three comparators. Yeah? In math we learn this, less than, greater than, equal to. So, say Hinamana, say Yamana, and Sadhisamana. But all this mana business can only happen if you see these entities. You and I existing as two different individuals. That is the basic moha. And in that, when that basic moha happens, now you can also like things because you desire them, or you can dislike things because you... Well, that is Dvesha. But all that can only exist for as long as Moha exists. And Moha is that basic foundation. Does that make sense now? So you need to understand then by this point, when I say Moha Raga, Moha Desha, and Moha Moha, you need to understand what this Moha is, and you need to understand what Raga Desha Moha is. Do you? That was the gist of what I tried to explain a few moments ago. This is the comparison. Greater than, less than, equal to. But on either side of these two, you need two things, right? X and Y. So X is less than Y, X is greater than Y, or X is equal to Y. So where did X and Y come from? This. So here you have X is good. Here you have X is bad. Here you have X is equal to Y. X is bigger than Y or lesser than Y. Or greater than or lesser than Y. So this X came from where? This. Where did the Y come from? That also this. This is this Moha. Now that should help you understand what this Raga Desha or Moha Raga, Moha Desha and Moha Moha. So what are we treating then in Buddhism? 
Which part? Yes, this. Because this happens, this is jati dharma. When jati happens in the mind, jati is a disease of the mind. Okay, jati is when the mind has gone insane. When the mind goes insane, like a madman who sees things out there that don't exist. Okay, when jati happens in the mind, ladies and gentlemen, jati dhamma happens immediately. Jati dhamma is where you look at this and go, this is a pen, this is a unit, this is an entity. It's not out here. Jati dhamma is not out here. Jati dhamma is a projection of a mind that is ridden with jati. So you, where, you, where will you find jati dhamma? Out there? Never. It's wherever jati is, that's where you see jati dhamma. So jati is one, but jati dhamma can be lots. You can have raga jati, dvesha jati, moha jati. You know, if you really wanted to expand it, right? Raga jati, dvesha jati, moha jati. Right? So, these three. So, if you have one of these, this is called raga jati. And I'm just carrying on from here. Right? We'll come to that point. Then you have dvesha jati and you have moha jati. So, this is the jati part. When you say moha raga, moha desha, moha moha, this moha, you're really talking about jati. Or Jati Dhamma, if you like. Either way, it means the same thing. It doesn't mean the same thing, but essentially it's, it's the same, same effect. Jati happens in the mind, and then these objects, these entities are created also in the mind, and then you either like them, you dislike them, or you compare them. That's what happens. So, take this object of desire once again, because we have to go to another one with aversion as well, and also one with Delusion as well, before we conclude today's talk. So you know what to do when you leave this room. This is the practice that will give you, take you to Nibbana. These sermons will only guide you. You have to do them. The objective of these talks is not that you, when you are here, you behave like saints. <laughs> the objective of these sermons is when you are not here, you behave like saints. Right, so we've come to this point where there's attachment and then there's vexation. Vexation for what? Now, I'm trying to explain a very very fine point. Okay, so please pay attention. Vexation for what? Vexation for whatever the mind thought and expected pleasure from. That's what. Let me say that again. The mind is vexed now. Right? The mind is vexed to what it's attached to. What is it attached to? Whatever the mind thought it could seek pleasure from. That's it. I mean, if it, seeks, if it thinks pleasure is in X, why would it attach to Y? Isn't it? If it thinks pleasure is in this, why would it attach to this? Because what is the mind looking for? Don't say happiness now. Freedom from suffering. Ultimately, that's what the mind is looking for. It is not looking for pleasure, ladies and gentlemen. It is not looking for happiness. It doesn't want Nibbana. Now, in another sermon, I would have said the complete opposite of this. You need to understand what I mean in that context. I'm saying the same thing, but I'm, sometimes I'm saying today X, tomorrow I'll say Y. And I'll say X is not Y, and I'll say Y is not X, but in, ultimately, they're both the same thing. 
You need to understand, given the context, what I actually mean by this. So the mind is not looking for nibbana, the mind is not looking for pleasure, it's not looking for happiness. What it's looking for is freedom from suffering, because the mind is constantly suffering. That's what it's looking for. If you could free it from suffering by giving it a piece of cake, the mind is happy to accept it. It doesn't need nibbana, because it doesn't know what nibbana is. That is why nibbana is not happiness. <laughs> huh? <laughs> what are we here for then? Buddha's guide to happiness. <laughs> Nibbana is not happiness. Yeah. Uh, no, mind needs to stop suffering. This is the minding process. No, let's not go there for now. Okay. <clears throat> Yes and no is the answer. You know, for whatever question you ask, yes and no is the answer. But I can't say yes and no, right? <laughs> because it's yes if you explain it in one way, and it's no if you explain it in another way. Does this pen exist? Yeah, yeah. Yes if you explain it one way, no if you explain it another way. So, it dip, so we need to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation to understand for, for the answer, the answerer to first ask you, what do you mean by that question? And then that becomes a one-to-one -one conversation and no longer a sermon. That's why we have the afternoon sessions. Where you have these group sessions. Make use of those sessions, ladies and gentlemen. You are very fortunate to have that. You know, our monks will come and talk with you, right? And you can, they'll answer all the questions you have in relation to what we've discussed today and in, in past sermons. Make use of those sessions. Not everyone gets them, right? Just think about it, how fortunate you are. You have a sermon and you can do the homework immediately afterwards. Extra support right at the end of the class. What more can you ask for? I mean, how many places you get that sort of thing? You get to listen to a sermon, then it's up down to you to go and reflect and understand it how you've understood it. But here, you can listen to the sermon and then you can ask the Bhante, Swaminas, this is how I understood it, am I right? I was listening to what Swaminas said, this is how I understood that, am I right? Can I give an example? Can you please correct me when, if, if something's wrong in the way I interpret that example? You know, that's what you can do in those sessions. Those are those one-to-one -one sessions, they're very helpful. So make use of them. So the question is this. What is the mind vexing for now? Whatever it is, attached to. What is it attached to? Whatever it believes brings it pleasure. Or rather, freedom from suffering. Now here's where the big jump is. Does the mind want pleasure? Based on today's conversation. Does the mind seek pleasure? No. Does the mind seek happiness? No. What does the mind seek? Freedom from suffering. The mind is simply looking for a, a moment's relief from suffering. And it believes that suffering, that freedom from suffering can come from this object. But what the mind doesn't understand is that freedom from suffering is not the same as pleasure. You know, really what it's doing is Although it needs freedom from suffering, because it doesn't know how to achieve that, it's settling for pleasure. That is what it's doing. It's like when you go to the shop, you want to buy white sugar. And the shopkeeper says, sorry, we only have brown sugar. Then what do you do? If you absolutely need sugar, then you go, fine, I'll have it then. That's what the mind is doing right now. The mind needs freedom from suffering 
He doesn't understand what pleasure is. But pleasure feels good. It feels good. It's not looking for that. Because if it's looking for that, folks, then even an arahant would still seek pleasure, wouldn't it? An arahant would still seek pleasure if pleasure was what the mind sought all along. No. Why does an arahant stop? Because his business is finished. The business of trying to free from suffering is done. Attachment only brings suffering, nothing else. Yeah? So therefore the mind is always looking for respite from suffering. Just a break from suffering, that's what the mind is looking for. But it doesn't know the difference between freedom from suffering and pleasure. Because the mind doesn't know that freedom from suffering can be achieved. It doesn't know this. If it knew it, it knows about Nibbana. Yeah. So the mind doesn't know this. But what the mind knows is this. Plenty of times before, it experienced moments of freedom from vexation. And that was pleasurable. Because it was pleasurable, it will keep on looking for that pleasure because that's the best it can get, given the circumstances. If I can't get freedom from suffering, let me at least get some pleasure, is what the mind's, is, is, the, is the intention that the mind has. So, it now thinks that freedom from suffering, a.k.a. pleasure, will come from this object. And therefore it attaches to it. Because it attaches to it, now it goes into vexation. And now, in this moment, we have the Abhisankara process is beginning to happen in the mind. What is this Abhisankara process? Rupan Rupataya Sankatang Abhisankaranti. Let me explain what that means. There is Rupa. Here is the Rupa. Okay? The mind believes, out of ignorance, that, this, that from this Rupa, this can be experienced. What can be experienced? Pleasure can be experienced. Or other, in, other, in other words, freedom from suffering can be experienced from the Rupa. But does it understand that freedom from suffering is to be had from Nibbana? No, it doesn't. It doesn't know that freedom from suffering is to put down that rock. It doesn't know this. Because it thinks forever long I'll have to keep carrying this rock. That's what it knows. But in carrying it, it will just extend its arms once and it just you know, feels a bit of relaxation and then carries the rock again. You know, like when you're carrying something heavy, right? sometimes you switch it from uh, you know, one hand to the other, right? Just to give you a moment's rest, moment's relief. Right? This is what the mind thinks. The mind doesn't know any, any, any better. It doesn't know that if I let it go, if I just put it down, I don't have to suffer anymore. The mind doesn't know this. Right? So, now, rupan rupataya sankatanga bisankaranti. So the mind thinks that in entities I can seek pleasure because that is what ignorance is. Nicha sukha atta. Nicha is the understanding or the belief, ignorance rather, that there are fixed entities in this world. Sukha is the belief that those entities are, you know, they are, they are, they are separate entities and that they are the source of happiness. They are the things that bring happiness to us. To us meaning the mind. This is what the mind believes. So there are fixed entities, or rather, you know, nothing in this world is, is is cause and effect, but rather there are things in this world, there are entities in this world. Those entities are the ones that bring me happiness. You know, just you know, this is exactly what's happening in your mind right now. As I asked you to think about the, the object of your desire, you immediately thought about an object, didn't you? And it's a fixed object. It's an entity. See, Nietzsche. And then Sukha. In your mind, you believe that those objects will bring you pleasure, will bring you happiness, will bring you joy. So your belief, I'm not necessarily talking about your drushti, I'm talking about your sanya, 
Okay, your sanya and your chitta is, keeps on telling you that it brings you pleasure, it brings you sukha, and it brings you atta. Meaning that these are entities and they, they are pleasurable to the soul, they are, they are pleasurable to oneself, right? and they can, be, they can be separated. Yes, they can be separated. So they are not based in a cause and effect principle. Okay, they're just there, they are pleasurable. And they are separate things. So if it's a separate thing, what can you do now? Grasp it. Because something's not separate, how can you get it? Why can't you catch air? Because it's not separate. See, if you just wave your hand across, you, you can't catch air, right? You, you, you can't hold it. It's not separate. It doesn't come as a, as a unit. It's just everywhere. But you can, you can cool it. You can make solid gas, not solid gas, but rather you can, you can condense gas into a solid and then hold it and you can hold carbon dioxide in your hand like this if you cool it. So that's when you solidify something. So this sense that these entities are fixed entities, they are units, they are, you know, they are, they are self-contained things. This, 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 this misconception of Atta now leads you to ascribe this pleasure to that object. So now you believe pleasure then comes from the object. What happens then? You go to attach. What is you? The mind. So the mind now attaches to it. And in that attachment now, but attachment itself is not the answer because it's still vexing. Not, it's still vexing. It's now beginning to vex. Now it's beginning to vex because of attachment. So now, the, what is the object of vexation? The object that the mind believed brings it. Happiness. Pleasure or freedom from suffering. Now what happens next? Now the mind, exactly, now the mind seeks it from, the, from whatever it has received. You know, the mind has nothing else to play with. You know, like a, like a kid that only has, say, building blocks to play with. The mind only has these building blocks to play with. The mind has nothing else to play with. So whatever it has to play with, you know, like a kid who wishes to build a sandcastle. So not a sandcastle, a castle. If all the kid has is blocks, it will build it with that. But if a kid wants a train and all he has is blocks, building blocks, then he'll build it with the building blocks. Whatever he wants, he'll build it with building blocks because that is all he has. In the same manner, whatever the mind wants, it has to build what it wants with what it has. Because what else does it have? It doesn't have anything else other than the five aggregates. So it uses the five aggregates, the five skandhas, to build what it needs. And what it needs is respite from suffering. But it thinks that it can only come out of pleasure because it doesn't know about happiness, doesn't know about Nibbana. Now you have the mind going into vexation and to relieve itself from vexation, it starts doing the Abhisankara stuff. So Rupan Rupataya. So here's what happens when Rupan Rupataya happens in the mind. There is the Rupa. The mind goes into manic mode, it goes into self-preservation mode, it goes into crazy mode, insane mode, and it begins to conjure up these, these, these emotions, these sentiments, these perceptions that this rupa is not really a rupa, it's a fixed rupa. Because now the mind has gone crazy, out of deep vexation. The mind has gone crazy. All this happens in a split second. It doesn't take very long at all. In a, in a single chitta, all this will happen. 
These jitas are very fast, so rapid. So this rupa now gets elevated to a abhisankata. Not just a sankata, but an abhisankata. What is this abhisankata? A separate rupa. Is it separate after all? It's not separate. How do we know that it's not separate? We can't just say it's not separate. For something to be separate, what are the qualifications that it must have? It must not be based in cause and effect. That if something separate, the, re- the definition of separate meaning, should mean that it's not based in cause and effect. Let's take the Rupa Apisankata. So I, I call it the, the Rupa Apisankata. Apisankata okay? Meaning a separate Rupa. Why do you say that this is not a separate entity? Yes, why? Where did the Rupa come from? That process. So it's driven by a process. In other words, it's cause and effect driven. Where did the Abhisankara come from? Cause and effect. That's driven by the ignorance and attachment process. So then, neither of these two parts fell from the sky. Both of these are creations of a process. So neither of these two objects or their union is a separate entity. They are both based in cause and effect. Therefore, you can't say that this is separate. That's why the, the biggest irony I keep telling you from time to time is jati. Because when jati happens in the mind, you feel that you feel this sense of separation. You feel this sense that you know, nothing can be anicca. But it is big thanks to anicca, jati happens. Isn't that so? Thanks to anicca, jati happens. But when it's once, anicca, once jati happens, it believes that anicca doesn't happen. It's like you believing that you didn't come from your parents. It is thanks to your parents you are here. But after you are born, you believe that it is not my parents who gave birth to me. The very reason that you can say this is because you were born in the first place. Yeah? So in the same manner, the very reason that Jati can claim to be self-sustaining, right, independent, and I have come out of nowhere, I am spontaneous. The very reason that Jati can say that is because Jati came into being out of a process. That is why I say jati is the biggest irony. The best example of irony you can give is jati. So then Rupa Abhisankata is not a separate entity, but rather cause and effect driven. And the same goes for Vedana. Now the mind hasn't stopped here, because until the mind perceives, you know, there is nothing in the mind. By nothing I mean there is nothing substantial in the mind. So perception has to happen. It has to complete that process. So it tries it with Ruvedana. Or rather registering. That, that process, that step. It tries to, to do the Abhisankara with that. And this, what is Abhisankara after all? Rupan Rupattaya. That is what Abhisankara is. Vedana Vedana Attaya. What is Attaya? Grandfather. Atta? No, not that Atta. This oneifying What is oneifying? <laughs> New diction, exactly. The oneification, the oneization, <laughs> the entitification, unification. Okay, so so considering something is unitary, something is a unit. You know that that process, that that thinking process, that is the process of. You know, this is all nonsensical stuff. You know, this is this is imaginary. None of this happens for real because nothing can happen like that. That very process is also driven by causes. 
the very process of identifying cause and effect or conditional entities as non-conditional entities is also driven by a conditional process. So, you know, what, is, what more is there to talk about it? If the very process... Think about ready-made food. When you bring ready-made food, like a ready-made meal, home, and you open it up and you think, you know, oh, this, these meals, you know, like, I don't think anyone cooks them. I don't think anyone cooks them because you go to the shop and they give it to you. Because, you know, they don't take you to the kitchen, do they? There's a counter and they ask you what do you want. I say, can I please have some uh, teriyaki noodles? And then they go and say, one minute, sir. Now give me a few minutes, sir. Please put your card here and tap your, here's the payment. And a few minutes later, they give you teriyaki noodles. Did anyone cook it? Seems not. So where does ready-made food come from? The sky. It's spontaneous. No one cooks them. But at home, you see how the cooking happens. Right? But the very reason that ready-made food exists is because there is a process called cooking, but you don't see it. That's why you think it's ready-made. It's not really ready-made. It's only ready-made to you. It's not ready-made to the restaurant, is it? To the restaurant, they have to make it on demand. But for you, it's ready-made because your point of reference starts from the point where you take the food. You don't have to take the raw materials and go and the ingredients and go and cook it. Because to you, it's ready-made. But it's not really. They cook it on demand. So in the, in the same manner, Rupan Rupattaya. What is Rupattaya? Is this unification. Oneization. Is this... Is, is just attempting to entitify a rupa. Why? Why, do, why is the mind trying to do this? Because what is the expectation? The expectation is that that will bring me pleasure. That is the expectation. Why that expectation? That is what ignorance is. You know, the thing is this, right? When the mind is ignorance is ignorant, you can't ask why. It's like you can't rationalize your dreams, can you? The things you dream. Right? You, you, in one dream, you're flying. Right? And, but you're an elephant. But you're still flying. You know, it defies all laws of physics. It defies the laws of biology. It defies the laws of chemistry. It defies all science. Because that's what a dream means. In the sense, just like you can't rationalize a dream, you can't rationalize things that you think because of ignorance. Because that is what ignorance is after all. It's not rational. It's irrational. So then you can't ask why does the mind think that uh, you know, pleasure can be obtained from an object. Well, that is what ignorance is all about. There's no rationale to it. There's no rhyme, reason or logic to it. That is what ignorance is. I mean, if you could rationalize it, if you could give a logic and rhyme and reason to it, then that's not, that's not ignorance then. So just like you can't explain what you see in a dream and, and you know, give it reason, the same way you can't explain why people do things when they're ignorant. And that's what ignorance is. So because of ignorance, then you have this expectation that there's pleasure to be had in the object and then the mind attaches to, not the object, it's not the object the mind attaches to, it's to the promise. Remember I gave you this example of cutting a piece of cloth the other day.
they, they saw a piece of cloth and there was a so there's this dotted line along which you have to cut right so cut along the dotted line that's drawn on the on the piece of cloth and now you have the scissors right ready to cut see is it cut yet no but you see the dotted line right do you not see the separate piece of cloth already the piece of cloth that is to be separated do you not see it already of course you see it already so what do you want now to be separate and this is the piece of cloth that you want so this is the larger piece of cloth okay this is the piece of cloth that you want to cut to make use of it you know to so a shirt or whatever so this is the piece that you want and even before you cut it now that the, the dotted line has been drawn you are already perceiving this and you already want it don't you that's why you start cutting it so here's where attachment is now this, this is a, a good analogy to understand what attachment is attachment happens just before you start cutting just before you start cutting now you're already attached to this piece it is because you are you are attached now you start cutting it okay so when you because you're attached now you want that piece and therefore you start cutting it so in the same manner when there is rupa but the mind is not interested in rupa because the mind is simply looking for freedom from suffering or pleasure and rupa comes along but not not pleasure now the mind attempts to seek pleasure from that but pleasure is not to be had in it and therefore the mind goes into insane mode because of this deep state of vexation and in this deep state of vexation now based in delusion it creates an illusion so now we are here right so we have jati happening in the mind jati dhamma which is what the mind has now this this is this illusion that the mind has created and therefore now the mind clings on to it raga so you have then out of vexation you have abhisankara so abhisankara is this creation of the illusion that's where the illusion happens all this is 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 contributory towards that but in the at the state of abhisankara this is the, there's a there's a plan for this illusion if you like a blueprint this is what this this is what the the the, the separated entity needs to look like yeah that is a karma this is the karma where the mind creates a blueprint right this is this is the model this is the shape this is how it needs to look this is the size you know and all the characteristics of what this separated object needs to be at the end is created at this point that is the karma so it's called the karma ladies and gentlemen because you know this is what the mind is supposed to do from there on that is the karma that the mind needs to do from there on the karma is the deed you know the mind was born i don't know how much of what i'm saying actually makes sense to you because the dhamma is flooding through my mind at a rate of a thousand miles an hour <laughs> i'm trying to i'm trying to express them to you in words i've never used before certainly not to to explain the dhamma so i don't know how much of this is actually making sense to you i'll keep on saying you keep on listening and one day we will meet <laughs> at some point i i know well and truly that what i want to say is not what i am saying so i apologize for that madam Mm. Yes. 
This one, yeah. So the expectation of uh, pleasure or, or a pleasant feeling. Yeah, that's that's what I have captured here. So Priya Madhura, so this this expectation, this is an expectation, an expectation that an object or an entity is going to give me pleasure. So now we have come to the point of Abhisankara. Right? This is the karma. So the reason I'm, I'm trying to explain to you why it's called a karma. Karma is what you do. It's the deed. So what is the mind supposed to do now? Is to go ahead and, and do this. Do what? This blueprint. It's now got a model. It's got a plan. Now, now let's execute. That's what karma is. Execution. From there on, the mind's job is to execute. Execute until it has achieved the objective that it set out to do. So now you have the Abhisankara. Abhisankara is the blueprint to try and get Rupa, Vedana, Sanya, Sankara and Vinyana to give you, to give itself the, the expectation that it has that is pleasure. But it cannot do that unless it is an entity. So the entity has to come first. So that the entitification of a rupa has to happen first, that is this moha part. Okay? And with that, or along with that, you need the raga part. Because now the mind, based in the drushti, believes that it is now going after something that it likes, because that is what you thought about. An object of desire, not an object of aversion. Something that you like. So let's carry on then. Through Abhisankara, next comes along, Yudtanha, Upadana, and so on, and until we get to the stage of the most critical point, Bhava. So, what is Bhava then? Huh. Let's try. <laughs> Let's see what Bhava is. Bhava is becoming. I know that doesn't do it. <laughs> becoming, becoming what? Becoming a good boy? <laughs> Bhava is becoming. Becoming means it is the point where all the causes are becoming the illusionary object. So the, the, the causes have now been lined up. It's, it's a bit like this, right? Say you wanted to cook something, you know, cook a, cook a meal. You want to make some, say, dal curry. Okay? Now to make dal, you need to go and find all the causes, all the ingredients. Not causes, but ingredients. So you need a pot. You need uh, you need a stove. You need some water. You need the you need the lentils. You need the turmeric powder. You need the salt. You need chili powder. You need the curry leaves, right? You need cardamom, whatever, right? You go and collect all these things. Coconut milk, right? You you get all these things. So now that you have all these things, all the ingredients, you you join them, you bring them together in a certain fashion. You can't just bung everything into gear into one pot and go boom. That doesn't, that's not how you make dal curry. You put them in a, in, a, in a particular order. Right? So you see, this, this coming together in a particular order, in a particular fashion, in a particular style, in the way that is required for a certain effect to manifest, is bhava. That is why it's called becoming. I'll try again. It's called becoming because it is becoming. <laughs> Don't you get it? <laughs> Duh. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, of course, it's going to become Dakari. That's why it's called becoming. So once it becomes Jati, 
All these causes are now the type of Dalkari. Remember where use, we use this word type for Jati? You know, I don't like this type, I like this type. This is red Jati, this is red pen Jati, this is black pen Jati. Jati is where becoming has happened to produce a certain effect. That's why it's called becoming. So once you bring all those ingredients together in the right fashion, in the right order, in the right uh, composition, right? Now they are together to manifest. There is only manifestation. There is nothing more. All there is is manifestation. Although the irony is, at the point jati happens, out the window goes manifestation, and you think that I was just spontaneous. That is the the biggest gimmick. <laughs> but but the truth is, jati is also becoming. This is very abstract. Uh, what? Oh, hold on. <laughs> hold your horses. So, we are still talking about how jati is becoming here, right? Because I need to, I need to explain to you how it becomes raga jati. Because that, that's when we, are, we have completed one iteration of this, of this process. Then you can do your dvesha and moha. So, now we are at the stage of bhava. So what is this bhava? Becoming. Why is it called becoming? Because all the causes that are required to produce a manifestation, what manifestation are we interested in? You need to always go back here. Right? This is where it all started. Until this is provided, there is no satisfaction. The mind isn't happy until it gets what it's looking for. What is it looking for? It's looking for pleasure out of this object because it believes that this object can give me pleasure. So remember, there are two things that the mind needs to do now. Initially, it needs to have this, 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 this belief or this illusion that there are objects in this world. right? Because if there are no objects in this world, how can you find the object that you like? Make sense for that? Yeah, first of all, you need to have this sense of object. There are objects in this world. And then you have objects that I like, objects that I don't like, objects I'm not sure about yet. So what do you have to do? If you're not sure about, you have to compare. Yeah, that's what you do. That's why you have this moha part. You compare until you get to a point of, yes, I like it or I don't like it. That's why it's called, this is anicca. That's a different kind of anicca. <laughs> Sorry, let's not go there. Come back, come back, come back. I keep dipping my toes into different things from time to time. Because this is so, this is so wonderful. That's what, you know, the Dhamma is flowing through my mind at such a rate and I can't seem to encapsulate all that into a few words to explain to you in the time that we have. But I think time, sermon after sermon after sermon after sermon, and the discussions you have later on, you know, they'll all help. So this is not one man doing this show. Don't never ever think of it that way. It's not me helping you. It's everything. Your merits is helping you tremendously in this moment. Whatever merits you have acquired to help other people, understand something that was going to help them to free themselves from suffering, whether that was teaching them math. And if that is all you knew, you taught them math because you knew that this teaching will help them to free themselves from suffering one day. At least they can count their, you know, their, their numbers or they check their balance when they, you know, when they pay some money for something. Even in that moment, if you gave something in the hope that they will, some freedom, some, some solace will come to them in, in, that, in their life one day, all those merits will come to help you now. So your merits are doing a, a huge part here. That's why each of you will understand what I'm explaining to you in a, in a slightly different way. So your merits have a huge part to play here. Some of you will have shut down by now already. 
That is also your merits. Or maybe the lack of it. Or maybe you understand the Dhamma. And if I explain to you today, what I'm explaining to you, you will completely, <laughs> you know, it completely goes off. So maybe you are falling asleep because it is your merits. I don't know. I'm not saying anyone's fallen asleep. I'm just saying. So your merits is helping you. Your noble companionship is helping you. The discussions at the end are helping you. All of this is helping you. It's not a one-man show. Come back now. Expectation of pleasure. The expectation that association with this object is going to give me respite, freedom, relief from suffering. For this thing to give me freedom from suffering, first of all, there has to be this thing. Make sense? First of all, the thing has to be there. But are there things in this world? All there are are manifestations. So, first of all, the mind has to create a thing out of a manifestation. That's like making kompitu. All there is is soil. Right? But you take the coconut shell, fill it with soil, with mud, and turn it upside down, and bang it a few times, and you go kompitu. So now you have a thing. But what there was was simply Nothing, <laughs> not nothing, but a manifestation, right? So this this uni this unification or this identification, ah, that's the word, identification, giving something an identity, because when you give something an identity, what you are actually doing is separating it from everything else. What does your identity card tell you, or tell the world that you are separate from everybody else? So identification, I think, would be the the right word for you to use that, provided you understand what I mean by that. Identification. So this identification or identification of rupa is what now the is, is what the mind now needs to do so that it can associate with this thing. Why does it want to associate with this thing? Because this thing is a source of pleasure. In other words, it thinks I can raga with this, with this. So here's the this, and here's the raga. Make sense? Right. Now we come to Abhisankara. At this Abhisankara point is where the mind has a plan on how to thingify this manifestation. What do I mean by thingify? <laughs> I'm just creating words here, there, everywhere. Right? So it's trying to... This is the thingification. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you. Separation. I think I'm going mad now. <laughs> This is the separation or the identification or the thingification of an entity so that it can then go on to associate with it and experience the pleasure that it thinks comes from it. That is what happens at Abhisankara. This is the kara. This is the doing thing. This is the job. This is the task. This is the endeavor. This is what the mind will strive to do from here on. That's why it's called the karma. What is karma? Deed. That is what the mind needs to do now. So thereon comes the becoming. That's why becoming comes after, after, after Abhisankara. Because here's the plan, here's what to do, and here's the almost end result of that execution. If this is the plan, right, then the chitta is the, like, if you can think of like a project. Right? Here's the project plan. <clears throat> Here are your stakeholders right, telling you what, what needs to be done. Here's your project plan. Now the chitta is the project manager and they go on to produce, bring in all the ingredients and to, to create this, this entity. 
So now we've come to the becoming stage where all of the causes that are required for this separation or identification to happen and then at Bhava, now you have the you have the illusion almost ready. Mind is completely deluded. The illusion is almost ready and on goes the switch. At that point, jati happens. Why does jati happen? Well, that is what cause and effect is. When all the causes for jati are present, what else can happen other than jati? Yeah? When all the causes are there, in the right order, in the right fashion, then what has, has to happen now is jati. And what is this jati? Separation. That is separation. This is identification. But it's not just any old jati. <clears throat> this is now raga jati. Why raga jati? That's where we started. You know, whether something is raga jati or dvesha jati all depends on your drishti. That's why raga jati to one will be dvesha jati to another. If you like red, then right now this is raga jati happening in your mind. If you dislike red because of your drushti, no other reason to dislike red is there? Is there any other reason to dislike red? Is there any particular reason to like red? No, it's all based on drushti. So based on your views, see, up here. Whatever you believed is pleasant. Whatever you believed was a pleasure of, of, of uh, source of pleasure. You came along that path and now you've gone into Bhava and then into Jati. So let me draw Jati up here. So now when it comes to Jati, now you have a type. That's what you call the typification. That is actually, that's an actual word. <laughs> I didn't make that up. The, the typification or identifying things as a type. Okay, so now it has been identified as a Raga type. So this is what has happened now, and therefore now you sense the you sense the object and you sense that it is pleasurable, but the problem is of course from there on starts misery. Eleven. Eleven girlfriends. The eleven great fires. Let's spend a little bit of time just understand, understanding why it leads to 11 great fires. You know, that is where you will begin to understand this whole process only brings me suffering. Of course, jati is the suffering to be seen through wisdom. Right? At this point, nothing hurts. You know, this, that doesn't happen. Nothing hurts at this point. It's just something that should be seen through your wisdom eye. But the 11 great fires happen immediately. So what are the 11 great fires? Let's take one of them. Because the mind is now deluded, because the moha has already happened, and now you have moharaga jati, yeah, you can call this moharaga jati. The jati is moha, but the, the manifestation is that of raga, because that is what your, your view was, your drishti was. Are you all with me so far? Yes? Okay. So that is what your drishti was. So you have a moha, raga, jati. So at this point, you are looking at an entity and you like the look of it. You want it to be there because you want to associate with it because you think that is what brings you joy. Right Now go back again to your example. I don't know what that example is, but you do. Do you want anything bad to happen to it? Do you want it to be destroyed? Do you want it to break down? Do you want it to... To, 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 you know, to be caught in a fire? Do you want it to be, to be 
you know, to uh, say uh, decay and die. Do you want it? Do you want those things to happen to it? No. But they do, don't they? Or do they? They don't really happen to the object. Because you have never dealt with an object all this time in sansar. You have never dealt with objects. You have only dealt with manifestations of perceptions. This is the rupa and the abhisankara. The illusion that you project onto the rupa. The mind only knows these two things. The mind does not know anything about the outside world. The sense organs help the mind to create a perception of the outside world. But without just stopping at a perception, it also goes on to create this jati and therefore it projects an illusion. And now it, 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 has, it has actually boxed this, put this into a frame. Right? This object, this object is now in a frame. And in that frame, if something is to happen to it, you think something's happening to it. That, you know, this is the thing. But I, I have to use language that has been created to talk about entities, and then I'm trying to explain to you that something is not an entity. So I say, if something happens to it, you think that something's happening to it. <laughs> because all of this, you know, this is Sankara here. Sankara is just required to, to, to perceive an object. But Abhisankara is required to create this illusion. Yeah. Well, well, all of this is also becoming. Right? Everywhere you look, there is only becoming. But this is a particular kind of becoming. Everything is becoming for as long as there is only cause and effect. Right? Even this Rupa is becoming. The Vedana is also becoming. Sanya, Sankarvinya, they are all becoming. But they are not becoming of Jati. The Paricca Samuppada process or the dependent origination process of suffering talks about the becoming of jati. The Buddha didn't, well, he, he, he did, but the reason we don't study the becoming of rupa, or the become, well, actually we do, that is what Anicca is. Avidya samudaya rupa samudaya, tanha samudaya rupa samudaya, karma samudaya rupa samudaya, ahara samudaya rupa samudaya, nibbati lakana rupa samudaya. That is the Pali. Okay? That is the becoming of rupa. That is how rupa becomes. Because without those five factors, there is no becoming of rupa. This is what cause and effect is. And effect becomes. It's not like the causes become an effect. Becoming happens. The problem is this again. If you look at the word becoming in the dictionary, it will tell you one becomes another. So when I say one becomes, you know, rupa becomes, you're thinking what became. But not so. That's why bhava is the right word for it. But then I have to give this sermon to you in English. Even if I spoke to you in Sinhalese, the same problem would be there. Because we are using a language that has been designed to talk about material entities. Because we live in a material world. In Nibbana, what language do we need? After Paranibbana, which language shall we learn? You don't need language because there are no entities to talk about. Yeah? No sankata, asankata. But, but here, we, I, so when, when I, I mean, so I'll give you the word becoming because that's the word you'll find in the scriptures and then I'll try to explain to you what I mean by that. So, you know, when you have avidya, tanha, kamma, ahara, nibbati, lakkana, 
these are the factors that will become Rupa. That will lead to the becoming of Rupa. Think of it that way. They don't become Rupa, but they lead to the becoming of Rupa. Because after all, this is just energy. So then, Avidya Tanha Kama Sparsha Nibbati Lakkan. Sparsha is contact. Okay, that's why we say this is receiving. Right? One the receive, once the receiving has happened, now there is contact, right? Because when you receive something, there is contact. Yeah, you give me something, there is contact, right? Me and whatever you've given me. So once I receive it, there is contact. So when contact happens, or sparsha, then you have Vedana, Sanya and Sankara. In other words, there are the causes that lead to the becoming of receiving, registering and responding. These are also becomings. All there is are becomings. In other words, manifestations. This is also manifestation. So don't forget for a moment, ladies and gentlemen, that although we speak of jati, jati is not not independent of cause and effect. If there was no cause and effect, there would be no jati. Yes. If there would be no, if there's no cause and effect, there would be no jati. So the whole reason that jati can exist, can manifest, is because the cause and effect process is there. Therefore, in other words, becoming is there. You know, bhava is not jati, is it? That's why bhava is called bhava and jati is called jati. Right? Rupa is not jati. Vedana is not jati. So how does then, how, how come bhava, what's the connection between bhava and jati? It has to become. Not bhava becomes jati. Jati has to become. Huh. Yes. So, do you remember the other day I brought some scra- uh, Scrabble letters and I was trying to make words out of them? Right? And, and, and uh, we had some words up and I can't remember exactly what the word was. Uh, as we placed letters, what was it? Antelope. Uh, onion, yes, onion. Onion was a good example. Okay, let's try and get this idea into our into our heads. Hmm? On. Okay. Iron. All right. I'll take the letters separately. O and N. This is a cause. This is also a cause. Don't ask me for what. It could be a cause for a myriad of things. Yeah? We don't know what it is a cause for. In fact, none of the causes know what it's taking part in. You know, the the atoms that make up this clip don't know because they can't know. Even if they did, they wouldn't know that they have come together to make this clip. Because do they need to know that? No. Do you need to know you're sitting in a circle to be sat in a circle? If I blindfolded you and held you by your hand and sat you around in a circle, do you need to know what I'm doing with you to then take off your blindfolds and then see that you are sat in a circle? No. In the same manner, matter nor energy need to know what plan is being executed on them. Because that is why we call them manifestations. Right? The, the very entities, the components that take part in a reaction, 
don't need to know what reaction they are taking part in. Because of cause and effect. It is cause and effect that drives it. There is no doer, just the done. Alright? So, O and N. There are simply two causes. Right? Tell me when you start to see on. Now, you know this because I put this up on the board here. <laughs> so, forgive me for doing that. Take that off as well. What do you see right now? O and N. You, you, you perceive them as two separate letters. Right? Let's, let's make the becoming of onion. No, sorry, the becoming of on. Let's do it this way. Right? O and N. What do you see? O and N. What do you see? O and N. What do you see? O and N. Now what do you see? Oh. How did that happen? See? Becoming. Causes lining up in the right composition. What if they came around the other way? Ah, now that's not on, is it? It's not on. <laughs> if N and O came together in, in a different manner, now you wouldn't say on is becoming. You'd say no is becoming. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. That is Nibbatilakana. This is what Nibbatilakana is. You know, the, the composition, the order, the, 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 the rules in, as to how things come together. Because uh, where do you capture that? There's ignorance, there's tanha, there's avidya, tanha, karma, ahara. But what, what determines the order of how things come together? That is Nibbatilakana. Oftentimes people have this question, what is Nibbatilakana? You just gloss over it. But just think of it. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there are plenty other descriptions and explanations of that. But for the time being, understand that Nibbatilakana is the order in which causes come together. Yeah? So you see, this is on. Now if N and O were laid down like this, you still see N, you see O. You see N, you see O. And now you see? No. Becoming. Again, becoming. Did the O become on? Did the N become on? No. At this point, did O become on and N become on? No. At this point, did O become on and N become on? Well, what about this point then? Did O become on and N become on? No. None of these two components became anything. It's a manifestation. The O never became on. In fact, the O doesn't even know that it's standing next to N. Just think that O and N were both blindfolded. Hmm? Still blindfolded. Do they know they stood next to each other? Do they? No. But doesn't on manifest? Hmm? Yes. That is why this manifestation is a becoming. It's a becoming. But now you see, this has become, <clears throat> this is a manifestation, right? Jati happens the same way. So, Rupa happens the same way. Vedana happens the same way. Sanya, Sankara, Vijnana, they all happen the same way. They are becoming. Becoming By becoming, what do we mean now? The causes come in together in the right order. So, the causes have to be there and the right order also has to be there. If I, if I give another analogy, 
Just think of a, a car, your, your car, right? Say the, uh, the tail bumper. You, you get in an accident and the bumper uh, is uh, broken, right? So now you have to get it replaced. So you go to the shop, the spare part shop, and you buy a bumper. You have a car, but you bought the wrong one. You ask someone to get it for you, and they bought the bumper for a different model. Now, the causes are there, but they don't match. So a bumper is there, but it doesn't match. So it won't become. It won't become the object of your, well, the object that you have in mind. Because for your, the object that you have in mind to become, it has to be the right model. That bumper has to be the right model. But now, if you, you, can, you may still be able to fit that bumper to, to that car. But now you'll have a car with the wrong bumper. That is what has become. Does that make sense? Yeah, so, you know, the whole product of this process is jati, right? It's difficult to say at what point in the chitta jati happens. Uh, I don't think our explanations are that advanced yet. Right? But, but what we do know is, you know, jati happens at some point, and it happens in the lifetime of the chitta, and that when that jati happens, it goes on to attack the rupa, the vedana, sanya, sankara, and vinyana, and all that is based in ignorance. Right? So, um, so we don't know at which point exactly in the chitta jati happens, but whenever jati happens, is the point at which the, the, actually jati, you know, is now don't get me the wrong way when I say this. Jati is not the problem. It's, it's the product of the problem. By the point jati, the plan for jati has happened, which is Abhisankara, it's too late. It's like if you drop something, right? When it hits the flow and makes a noise, is when you know. Right? That's when, that's when there's the noise. But the problem happened when you let go. Yeah? So the moment there was ignorance and this this expectation of pleasure, right? At that point itself, the problem started. Jati is simply the noise that it makes. Jati is not really the problem. That's why I said don't take it the wrong way, because jati is the problem. The first noble truth of suffering is jati. Exactly. It's a, it's a point where you, you create an illusion. There's the real world, and then there's your, your projected world. That's the point where it happens. But it, it, you know, this is the product of a, of a long process, of a lengthy process. Like cancer, you know, for say for someone who's been smoking for several years, they develop a cancer. The cancer is not, you know, that is simply the end result. That's not where it started. Now, of course, the cancer is the noise, but they started with the smoking. That's where the problem started, right? In the same manner, when jati happens, you know, that's the end result. That's where the, the suffering that will happen, you know, like the suffering that comes from a cancer, you don't have to, you know, it starts to, you know, uh, affect parts of your body and so on, right? But when jati happens, the 11 great fires don't come before that. Yes, that is true. But that is because it, it is at this point, you have the real world, which is this world, and then on top of that, you create a projected world. So these two worlds now have to overlap. There's the real world and the projected world. That is done through jati. point I was trying to explain to you earlier was like the bumper of a car. And when you get a replacement part, if it's a replacement part of a different model and you still fit it, 
uh, it's like this, right? Here's the car, here's the bumper, here's the bumper from another car, a different model. You fit it. See, it doesn't fit properly. But you can still hold it in place like this. You can do that. But you wouldn't, say, you wouldn't sell this to someone like this, would you? You wouldn't give it to someone like this. Because now, what has become is not this. I mean, if you're probably wondering, yeah. <laughs> but I'm trying to explain to you something more than what meets the eye here. What has become is now this. So it's not like there is no becoming. There is a becoming. This has become. But neither the clip nor the pen know that they are together now. They don't know this. They don't need to know. Needing to know is not part of becoming. If the, that's why they say when this, this part of Nibbati Lakkana, <clears throat> when, you, when you explain Nibbati Lakkana, <coughs> excuse me, when you explain Nibbati Lakkana, there is not just the causes coming together, but they have to come together in the right order. They have to come together in the right composition, in the right manner. But you have a question there. Who decides what is right? Exactly. It's whatever is appropriate for that manifestation. In other words, really, you can only look back and say it was right or wrong. You look at the manifestation and then you go back and say whether the causes were right or wrong. You can't look at the causes and then say whether the manifestation is right or wrong. So really, there is no right or wrong. Whatever the manifestation is, they were the right causes to come together to create that. That's it. Have there ever been the wrong causes to create a manifestation? Is this not a manifestation? Hmm? What were the causes? This black pen and the black lid. Yeah? Or the black cap. Alright. Is this not a manifestation? Red pen and red cap. Alright. <clears throat> Is this not a manifestation? I won't be able to manifest the next one because I just dropped it on the floor. Is this not a manifestation? Is it not? It is. Haven't the right causes come together to manifest this? Huh? <laughs> Think carefully and answer. Haven't the right causes come together in the right order to manifest this? Yes. Of course, the right causes haven't come together to manifest this. But this is a different manifestation. And the right causes hadn't come together to manifest this. Because this is a different manifestation. But, when these causes come together like this, stay, haven't the right causes come together to manifest this? Manifest this? They have. So is it wrong? No. You can't say that. That is what I mean by becoming. There's no right or wrong. You just need to accept it for what it is. Upeksha. Exactly. You know, what is right, as I say, you can only retrospectively say that. Yeah, and it's always right. If this is the manifestation that is supposed to be, when, was, when did the wrong causes come together? Let me ask the question again. Uh, yeah, hold on. <clears throat> for this manifestation to occur, when did the wrong causes come together? They never did. Because if they did, this would not be the manifestation right now. The very reason that this has manifested is because the right causes came together in the right order. 
Ah, okay. Now it's like this. When did the wrong, when did the wrong causes come together? Or when did the right causes not come together for this to manifest? When? The answer is, no, never. Because if this is the manifestation, then these are the causes and they have come together in the right order. So when is it ever the wrong causes? It never is. So then why are we dealing with jati? What's the problem? Why are we trying to stop this manifestation? It's The only reason is, you suffer. That's why. The eleven great fires are painful. They're hurtful. They bring you distress. They bring you anxiety. They bring you stress. They bring you anguish. They bring you despair. They bring you frustration. And it hurts. That's why we are looking at the causes and the manifestation as to how it occurs and to try and do something about it. So therefore, an arahant by their very nature has no problem with any manifestation because they don't have any suffering. Suffering is the only problem that we are trying to deal with, with Buddhism. All things are manifestations and all things are rightly manifested. There is nothing wrong with any manifestation. In fact, even jati is rightly manifested. There is nothing we need to do to change jati. But we still do. Because jati hurts. That's why. Jati is a female dog. That's why we deal with it. So. Mm, good question. <clears throat> I'll answer that question next week. If you if you can't wait, go and listen to the poison bottle. We did a talk on that. If you remember, there's a poison bottle. Very in very in, in very few words, you drink poison because you don't know it is poison. But it is the poison that kills you. It is the poison that kills. It is not your ignorance of poison that kills. A subtle difference there. It is the poison that kills, not your ignorance of poison that kills. You can be ignorant all you like about poison. If you don't drink it, it doesn't kill you. But be ignorant, that leads to drinking poison, that leads to death. So ignorance leads to attachment, leads to suffering. So what you need to do is to stop drinking poison. But you will drink poison because you don't know that it is poison. But death is not caused by the ignorance of poison. Death is caused by drinking poison. That is a short answer. I think that answers the question. So do you understand what becoming is now? Now, eleven great fires, you know, is the problem is, is the problem that we experience. Right? Day in, day out, this is, this is why we are actually talking about all this. If the eleven great fires didn't happen, if we stopped that jati, we wouldn't talk about any of this. Because the eleven great fires, they hurt. They, you know, they, they bring pain. So we have to do something about it. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, at each point. At each point, there is, there is Nibbati and there is Viparanam. But... Now, if you take uh, take old age, right? Aging, if you if you take aging as uh, as one of the eleven great fires, or decay as one of the eleven great fires, you know, when when you see see look at this for instance, okay? If this is the manifestation that you seek, 
this is the manifestation that you that you want you will say that this manifestation is 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 this is this is becoming not that becoming but rather um, uh, arising that this uh, this manifestation is arising this is growth you say this is growth so then what is decay the opposite would be decay yeah if these two were together to begin with and then the two of these these letters start to to split, split apart and separate now you say that is decay so when do you actually call some something or someone is decaying when you have a frame in your mind as to how things ought to be meaning you have separated you have a separate picture of how things are supposed to be in other words these two letters are now one but they are never they were never one and they never will be one only in your mind will they be one as i said o doesn't know it's standing next to n n doesn't know that it's standing next to o so they are never a pair but in your mind they are a pair because you have formed something that did not exist inherently in either o nor in n on is something you have created it's not here now once you create that once you create that once these the, the two of them start to split now you say it's going to decay viparinama viparinama dukkha but at this point also there is vipranama 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 not just in that way in this way as well even even as you go see when i say vipranama here 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 and here you will tell me of course i mean you know, so i can see that you know they they're separating and therefore there is vipranama not not necessarily as i talk about the opposite process as well o and n becoming on that is also vipranama because what that vipranama is the opposite of nibbati if becoming is nibbati the causes coming together in the right order in the right fashion if that is nibbati then what about the causes <laughs> dispersing or the causes not lining up or the causes going into chaos right then that is vipranama when is that happening at every point every point because wherever there is udaya there is vaya wherever there is arising there is passing away whereas wherever there is nibbati there is also viparanama it just depends on which manifestation you are talking about so that udaya and vaya you have to talk in reference to a particular manifestation ice turns to water water into vapor throughout the process you have udaya and vaya you have nibbati and samudaya but if you have a particular state that you have a preference for or a desire for now you talk about the worldly kind of decay and death and then impose time on it because then you put it on a timeline now you have a story to tell right there was initially water then you heated it and then there was initially there was ice and then i kept the ice outside and then it became water and then the water we put in the in the in the stove and now i have vapor so now you take a, you tell a story you know do these things know that they are part of a story they don't nothing in this world is part of a story stories are only concoctions of the mind we create our own stories like a spider that weaves its own web the mind creates stories out of events that take place all there are all there are in this world are pachupanna dhammas none of it are part of a story <laughs> but you remember from your childhood i when learning language and so on 
right? They gave different parts of a, of a story, right? Once upon a time was one line. They lived happily ever after is another line. The king met the, 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 the prince met the princess is another line, right? The, the orc came and, and, and abducted the princess is another line. The prince uh, saved the princess was another line. Okay, and then they ask you, put these lines in the right order. How were you able to do that? In your mind, you are able to place these events in a particular sequence. That sequencing is possible because you are able to create stories in your mind. In other words, you are able to create illusions. You can imagine things, which the mind is very capable of. The mind can imagine things. So once you create this imaginary world, now things have to happen in a particular sequence. That is why you, you, you put time, the dimension of time, onto unrelated, independent events that take place in this world. The reason this arm went up was because there were causes that took it up. It's coming down again, not because it went up earlier. Those two things have no connection. But of course, it couldn't come down if the causes to bring it up were not there initially. But that is not the reason why it's coming back down. I don't know if that makes sense. What I'm trying to say is, you know, each, each event, each sankhara is unrelated. There's no relation between each other. They're all very discrete things. But not unitary things. Because then that would be, you know, again, I'm trying to prove what I'm trying to disprove. They're not unitary things, but they're all discrete things. Discrete because they have no connection to each other. Each of those moments are manifestations of the causes that are available in that moment. Now, of course, we didn't get the time to think, reflect on a Dvesha object and a Moha object, but, you know, whatever object you had in your mind as the object of desire or an object of lust, right? If you just take a moment to contemplate on this happening in your mind, now you realize this is what is really going on. You know, this is opening the bonnet and looking at how this car runs. This is a very natural process. It happens to the Aran. This is the boot. It's not the rock. But this is the rock. It is the rock that causes the bruise, not the boot. But to take the, the rock off, you have to take the boot out, give it a shake. So you have to hold the boot in your hand, turn it upside down, shake the, shake the rock and put the boot back on. But don't throw the boot away. That's not the answer. Of course, it seems like when you take the boot off, the rock also went out with it. But that is not the answer. You need the boot. It's not what causes the pain. So we are not in the process of trying to eliminate Rupa Vedana, Sanya, Sankara, Vinyan. We're not trying to aspire to Asanya, Satya, Satya. That's not what we're trying to do. We're just trying to keep the Rupa. As I said, these glasses only help me see clearly what is out there. When I put these glasses on, my intention is not to look at the glasses. This Dhamma is to help you see the world clearly. Understand the Dhamma and through the lens of Dhamma, look at the world. So you needn't be worried about thoughts that come into your mind about sensual desire that comes into your mind, about anger that comes into your mind, about lust that comes into your mind, about ego that comes into your mind. You needn't worry about any of these things, provided you have your glasses on. But if you don't have your glasses on, you're as blind as a bat. You don't know where you're going. Then you'll bump into things, you'll fall, right? you'll hurt yourself. This is why people hurt themselves. When they don't have the Dhamma. Then when you know, a memory comes into their mind about something they've done yesterday, or maybe regret comes into their mind, see, why does regret come? Regret comes because you're looking at objects without your glasses on. Now you're bumping into things, you're falling, you're treading on them. You're stubbing your toe on things, you know, it's, it's similar. 
But put your glasses on, past events will come back to you. Maybe you are unfaithful to somebody. Maybe your partner, you are unfaithful to your partner. Like the, the, the thought comes back into your mind. You know, the Buddha talked about the things that he used to do as a Bodhisattva. He talked about, you know, in the Jataka tales. You know, there are plenty of stories where, you know, where he's done things in the past. You know, he's reminding himself of the things that he'd done in the past and he's relating them. But today he relates them through the lens of Dhamma. It doesn't bother him. That's it. You know, as true Buddhists, ladies and gentlemen, our, our, our fight is with the Mara Dhamma. Mara is a part that you create inside. Dhamma is out there. Mara you create inside. If you remember, the Buddha tells the Mara, Mara, the eye belongs to you, and so does sight. The sound belongs to you, and so does ear. The nose belongs to you, and so does smell. The tongue belongs to you, and so does taste. The body belongs to you, and so does tactile sensation. They belong to you. You can have it, you can keep it. What the Buddha says is, this sight, sound, smell, taste and touch, and the sense organs, not the physical ones, but the receptive part of this, right? they are all dhammas. Right? They belong to you, but I have my lens on. Through the dhamma, through the dhamma I see, through anicca, dukkha and anatta I see, the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue and the body. I see sight, I see sound, I see smell, I see taste and I, and I see touch. Although you are Mara, I am Kumara. Because I have my lenses on. So when I look through my lenses, I am not fooled by your gimmicks. I don't fall victim to your weapons of destruction. I stand forthright, I stand righteous because I have the Dhamma. This is what we try to do. Anicca Dukkha and Anatta is the lens through which you have to look at the world that you live in. So we don't practice closing our eyes and shutting ourselves down from the world out there. That's why we eat whatever you give us. We go wherever we need, we need to be. We look at the things that we need to see. Right? It's, that is, the fight is purely internal. We don't block ourselves out. You bring whatever image you want to show me, I'm happy to look at it. If the Buddha has laid down rules of conduct saying, you know, you are not supposed to look at these images, those images and so on, then we don't, because we don't debate the the, the Vinaya, we just follow the Vinaya. The Dhamma is to discuss and understand. The Vinaya is not to discuss and understand, the Vinaya is to follow. So say the Buddha has laid down, you are not supposed to look at flowers. I won't look at the flowers. Because the Buddha has said it's not supposed to do, you're not supposed to do that, because someone might think badly of the Mahasanga, therefore don't look at flowers. Okay. But if the Buddha does not say so, show me the most beautiful flower in this world. Bring me the most beautiful woman that you think is there in this world and see if I'll turn my head away in fear that if I look at her, lustful thoughts will arise in my mind. If so, what is the point of Buddhism? What is the point of me ordaining? What is the point of Dhamma? Because if that is Mara, then I have to have Kumara. Not today. We have to conclude there. Okay? So please, reflect. 
Think about all these examples we talked about, how these things manifest, how when raga comes into your mind, the process of raga. Upanananang, raga vitakkang, no, sorry, uh, kama vitakkang, nadivaseti, pajahati, vinodeti, dantikaroti, anabhavam gameti. So when, the, when a raga chitta arises in your mind, recognize the fact that this is a raga chitta. How do you recognize this is a raga chitta? By contemplating on this process. Now you see a chitta and you see raga. See, now you see the raga chitta. If you don't see these two processes, you think, I am now ragic. That is where you, you fall prey. You don't need to be ragic or dveshik or mohik. You just need to recognize that this is a raga chitta, a dvesha chitta, a moha chitta. The moment you think about that, and come to your senses. The raga can no longer survive. Why so? Last, last point. Why so? No ignorance. Ignorance can only prevail for as long as you are ignorant. Of ignorance. As soon as you see, this whole process is driven by ignorance. Ignorance is dispelled along with that expectation of pleasure along with that attachment, along with that vexation, along with that abhisankara, along with that bhava, along with that jati. What jati? Moha raga jati, moha jeta jati, moha moha jati. Along with that, eleven great fires. Beautiful, isn't it? Yes. Alright, let's conclude for today. Then. Let us all take a moment then. Shrantz of the merits that we have all acquired. By making offerings to the infinite virtues of the noble triple gem, listening to the Dhamma, observing precepts, and inviting the venerable monks to deliver the sermons today. First and foremost, let us transfer these merits to the bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, upasakas and upasikas, who have since time immemorial protected and preserved the sublime teachings of the Buddha and passed it down to the generations of the noble lineage in the form of the Tripitaka. Let us also take a moment to transfer these merits to all members of the Mahasangha present throughout the world, including the chief priests of all of the chapters who dedicated their lives to the noble path and have committed themselves towards the betterment of all sentient beings. Let us also transfer these merits to the monks and nuns resident in your local temples and nunneries who have always been by your side through thick and thin, come rain or shine. Let us also transfer these merits to my teacher, Guru Swami Nuhanse, as well as all the other monks resident at the monastery and the Anagarika and Anagarika communities attached to the monastery. Let us also take a moment to transfer these merits and express our gratitude to those who make great efforts to disseminate the teachings of the Buddha, be that by transferring these talks, sharing them out with others or inviting others to join them, by the power of these mates, may they be healed of any physical and mental ailments and overcome any obstacles through their spiritual progress. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer these mates that we have acquired to our devotees and friends of the monastery, who for the sake of merits continue to sustain the Mahasangha. Let us transfer these mates to all those who make contributions towards the construction of the monastery, as well as those who provide the Mahasangha with shelter, arms, robes and medicines. May they all rejoice in these merits, as well as those who provide their know-how and ex extend their well wishes. By the power of these merits, if may they be healed of any physical and mental ailments and overcome any obstacles through their spiritual progress. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to run for these merits to our mothers and fathers, husbands and wives, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, grandparents, uncles, aunts, cousins, nephews and nieces, our friends, our acquaintances, our employees, our employees, our teachers, 
as well as those who've gone all the way to help us, support and assist us in any way, shape or form possible and available to them. May they all rejoice in these merits and by the power of these merits. They be healed of any physical and mental ailments and overcome any obstacles to their spiritual progress. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer these names to the devas and brahmas, spirits and demons, and primarily the Sakadeva, as well as all the numerous gods and deities who have committed themselves to protect and preserve the, the, the sasana. Let us also transfer these names to our guardian deities who keep a watchful eye over us and keep us out of harm's way. By the power of these merits, <coughs> excuse me. By the power of these merits, may they prosper in divine power and wisdom. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfil the meritorious deeds, fulfil the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer these merits to those who have lost their lives in the wars, be they friend or foe, as well as those who make great sacrifices on our behalf to protect the peace and harmony of our nation. This includes the armed forces as well as the police force. May they all rejoice in these merits. Let us also transfer these merits to our loved ones who have passed away in our name, our, the predeceased as well as the ancestors and our forefathers, those whose blood, sweat and tears in which today we are able to enjoy the comforts that we do and practice the Dhamma in blissful comfort. May they all rejoice in these merits. Let us also transfer these merits to those who have lost their lives in natural disasters such as tsunamis and earthquakes, landslides, fires, pandemics and so on, reminding ourselves that in this infinitely long journey of samsara they will all have been mothers and fathers to us, brothers and sisters to us, friends and acquaintances to us. They will have gone all the distance to help us, support and assist us in any way, shape or form possible and available to them, reminding ourselves of this fact that us, out of boundless compassion and infinite loving kindness towards all of them and gratitude, transfer all these merits to them by the power of these merits. If any of them have been born in the woeful plains, they redeem themselves and be born in the blissful plain. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. And finally, may by the power and blessings of all the merits we have acquired throughout the day, we be able to witness the advent of many hundreds of thousands of arahants on this blessed land, and may you and I, and everyone who's helped make this program a success, become a Rahatan Mohanse or another Rahatan Mohanse in this very life itself and in the era of the Gautama Supreme Buddha itself. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. May the blessings of the Noble Triple Gem be with you all. <coughs> and the members of the Mahasangha will transfer their blessings to you. Sukita Tara Vetma 
निबान परम सुखयन सुखित तार राग गिनी वेश गिनी मोह गिनी निवन सत निवन सत निवन सत तुंडे सुविशलंत महागुण बल शीलोक शील सत्योग निबान परम सुखेन सुखदर व्यक्त साधु साधु साधु